Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Rise and shine for National Biscuit Month with Hardy's Famous Buttermilk Biscuits. Made with love from scratch, fresh all morning. It's not the easy way, but it's the right way. Hardy's Goodness in the Making. So you're looking at, uh, you know, Iraqi, Kurdish, Syrian, American military expe- uh, perspectives, as well as Yazidis that have been taken as sex slaves, as well as refugees, displaced people, the terrorists themselves. I interviewed a number of them, um, terrorist wives. So I'm really just trying to piece together how how people view this situation and what happens and kind of pull out some of those details and those really human stories that I think get really overlooked in a very sanitized uh, news format. What is everyday like? when you're dealing with this, when you have to leave your home, what do you take with you? What do you tell your children about why you are leaving? How do you explain, um, you know, why your religion is targeted? I just tried to kind of understand a lot of the burning questions I think can help us paint a broad picture of a situation without sort of copious um, sort of statistics, which I think, you know, again, sanitize the situation and remove us from what's happening. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. She's been a journalist for the last 14 years, a war correspondent and writer focusing predominantly on the Middle East for the last seven of those. She is the author of Only Cry for the Living, an investigative reporter-wise. She actually walks around with Geraldo Rivero's balls in her purse. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Holly McKay. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Thanks for coming. I uh, I appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. I know the book just came out a week ago, and you're on the the whirlwind uh, tour, and you stayed a, a couple extra days to accommodate my schedule to be on here. So I really appreciate that. It's a pleasure. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just an all-around American industry. 
Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house. And they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now. And I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd like to take a second to uh, shout out our newest sponsor, which is Project Warpath. This is a Navy SEAL-owned company uh, that provides apparel with a pretty edgy uh, feel. And uh, it's a good friend of mine that, uh, that runs it out of California. Uh, and just an, overall a great outfit. Um, they've got a, a whole line of different shirts, uh, one of which uh, is, is arguably, arguably my favorite, which is Epstein Didn't Kill Himself. Wonder where that one came from. And uh, But yeah, there's Hillary Clinton Killed My Friends. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, pretty edgy and cool patriotic sayings on T-shirts with uh, with good design, good high quality, uh, and it's one that uh, that I'm actually wearing right now. So uh, I appreciate uh, them sponsoring the show again. That's Project Warpath. Uh, you can get all their stuff online, and uh, and you know the shipping and customer service is top notch, quality product, and uh, you're supporting a veteran-owned business. So shout out to Project Warpath. Go check their uh, stuff out. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, Resilience Premium CBD. Resilience is excited to offer all Mic Drop listeners a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code MICDROP at checkout. That's two words, MICDROP at checkout. I'd also like to say that Resilience is a great company uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD. And all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders. And that's uh, through the military and first responders program. You just have to sign up at resiliencecbd.com slash military first responders discount. In terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, that's www.resiliencecbd.com. And Resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well, personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. Uh, a lot of times, most people and, and people are able to either wean and off entirely or significantly reduce pain management, ther uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. What was your favorite uh, Syrian food that you ate while you were there? I know it was Slim Pickens, but of what you had, what was what was the one thing that stuck out? You know, I'm I like the uh, kibbeh, which is the raw liver. Really? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of of those sort of organ meats and and stuff like that. And then just the good old kebab, yeah. good old barbecue kebab. Yeah. Yeah, but I love Middle Eastern food. I I love all of it. Did you uh, grow up eating organ meats at all? One of my earliest memories was my mother cooking kidney one time and just completely gagging and thinking it was the most <laughs> disgusting thing. And what what was that? But yes, but it was more. And then I it didn't really develop a taste for it all. And then in the Middle East, 
it was all the time. I remember in Yemen, that was all I could find to cook was liver. So I was at this little compound and they would cook liver breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I thought it was great. And everyone else was complaining about it. And I just thought it was great. So I think I really acquired the organ meat taste yeah. from the Middle East. Yeah, I know. Like I didn't grow up eating much of it, and so it, uh, it it's hard for me to get used to. It's very metallic-y and gamey, and yeah. it's just very strong flavor that I, I still, I would say, don't particularly enjoy. Like I have to mix it with things to, to eat it, but it's so so good for you, provided it comes from you know a relatively healthy animal. Uh, it, it's just so important yeah, to eat. Is. But um, what's the most beautiful place that you've ever been to in your uh, professional career? Uh, there's so much in Iraq that I, I do really love, but what really stands out for me is the Pangea Valley in Afghanistan. Um, it's sort of this little oasis in the middle of the madness, and it just everything felt, everything was very peaceful, and you had the water, and you had um, just people that were just kind of picnicking, and everything was was so emerald, and I just remember looking over in the mountains, and even then it was it was summertime, so things had started to get pretty hot and dry, and even then it was just this kind of beautiful, mystical place that I, I just, yeah, it was this sort of little oasis, and I thought if it was anywhere else but Afghanistan, it would be the perfect holiday destination. Yeah. What, uh, I mean, even amongst all the madness that was going on, yeah, people were just kicking back and picnicking. and. Yeah. I mean, Pangea Valley, I guess, was a little bit isolated from a lot of the crazy that, that sort of been engulfing Afghanistan for the past 20 years. Um, it's always been a little bit more of a safe haven, not to say that it, it still definitely has attacks and it's still very vulnerable to attacks, but it's managed to pretty pretty well fortify itself from from a lot of that and maintain yeah. this sort of very antiquated um rich uh, feeling i guess and you know it's fascinating because when you walk through it it still has all the remnants from the soviet war that was the place that was hit the hardest during that war so you still have all the soviet tanks and they're just everywhere they just kind of nobody ever picked them up and they still uh, the weapons are still on the ground and it's just, it's a fascinating kind of live museum. Yeah. It's just, wow. it's hard to explain. How much time did you spend there? Uh, in, I mean, in Pandir itself, I think I was there for about a week yeah. and then sort of, yeah, Afghanistan yeah. in and out. Yeah. Uh, what was the most materialistic thing that you missed from, uh, from back home while you were over there that you're almost ashamed to admit? Oh, just a regular toilet. <laughs> that was yeah. it, a regular toilet. Yeah. I, I don't just, know that I'd call a, a toilet a materialistic thing. But. Oh, I don't know. I tell <laughs> you, that was that was thing, the one thing I realized I could just never get used to. No matter how long I was there, I could just never get used to the hole in the ground thing. Yeah. It just killed me every time. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I hear you. It's a lot easier being a guy in that scenario for yeah. sure. But uh, what is your ideal vacation? Oh God, that's really mood dependent. How I feel when I wake up that morning. Um, I've always been someone who really likes adventure vacations, so going to places and and being sort of part of their history and and trying to immerse myself in whatever the locals are doing and just kind of experiencing the local food and the local dining and the local um, things that there are to see. I think the more chaotic though that my work has been the more that I've looked for places where I can do nothing. Yeah. Um, where you can lie on that pretty beach. And I'm a hot, I'm Australian, so I'm a hot weather girl. I like the ocean. So yeah. do, do you find it hard to, to kind of turn your brain off that way? I know for me, vacation wise, like I don't really take them because I, I, yeah. I can't. And, and not, not that I can't like, 
can't make it happen. Of course, I could carve the time out and make it happen. For me, I, I, I'm so kind of integrated into my business and, and yeah. entrepreneurship from, from that standpoint that it's really difficult for me to just unplug and disconnect because there's just so many th other things going on, which I know is, isn't particularly great. But do, do you find? Yeah, I'm with you on that in that I guess I've rationalized if I don't if I'm not checking my emails, then I'm going to have a thousand piled up when I get back and that's yeah. going to be more stressful anticipating that. Yeah. So I do try to still keep on top of things when I can. Yeah. Yeah. I wish, I wish that I could learn to disconnect better. I think that that's a healthy thing if we yeah. can do it, but I'm not, I'm with you. I'm not there yet. Yeah. I, I think there's a, there's a level of, um, I mean, I, I hate to say it in, in the world that we live in, but I, I think it's just kind of a stark reality that there's a, a, an amount of financial freedom that has to be there for you to be able to be to not worry about those things. Like, I mean, to me, for, for me, I guess, and, until I'm at that point, I, I can't switch it off. You know, like I'm still just always trying to uh, to get to a point where I, I don't have to worry about things. Maybe that never comes. I don't know. Um, one of the things I ask every every guest that I, I always find fascinating uh, is what is your morning routine? Now, for you, I'll caveat that with, uh, and I do with most guests, but this is as, as normal of a routine when you're at home, uh, if such a place even exists, you know, a, a home base that that you can really, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, explain what what that looks like, uh, not when you're traveling. Yeah. I'm always traveling. Yeah. <laughs> so home, home to me isn't isn't really a material structure. It's a it's where I lay my head or it's people that I'm around. So I'm pretty minimalist in that sense for now. Um, but I'm a big uh, big proponent of running. I really love running and it's it's uh, it's a deal breaker for me wherever I am. So I try to avoid scheduling anything that's super early that might prevent me from from doing my morning run. So that's a, usually the first thing I do once I sort of get up and pull myself together a little bit and I'm kind of slow getting out the door. But it's, yeah, it's the no-brainer. So the so, run is everything. It's usually 40, 45 minutes, 50 minutes. And then uh, in my previous life I was a ballet dancer, so I'm still very big on stretching and, and keeping the body healthy that way. So I stretch and then – uh, load up on coffee. <laughs> Do you eat anything uh, first thing in the morning? Or? You know, it depends again. Um, I try not to. I try to give it a, a few hours until sort of maybe 11 or however where I am. But sometimes traveling, you kind of just got to eat something when you can if yeah. you don't know if you're going to have something later. So I try not to be too stringent about it, but I do like the idea of, of kind of just waiting a little bit and, and doing that sort of 14 hour fast if you can. Yeah. Uh, so you, you mentioned you're from Australia. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, kind of where specifically in Australia you're from and, and what your childhood was like. So I grew up uh, in North Queensland. Both my parents are from uh, just north of Cairns, which is near the Great Barrier Reef. It's I've right at the top of the country. Yeah. You've been there? I've been there. Oh, actually. nice. Nice. Yep. It's a, yeah, a beautiful place. So that was sort of where much of my childhood was spent. Um, my grandfather was a sugarcane farmer, so it was very remote, sort of tropical rainforest, very isolated place. And I think that's probably why I, I sort of learned to be a writer when I was pretty young because that was the only thing that was going to – entertain my brain there wasn't too many people around me to 
to keep me stimulated. So yeah, it was it was a gorgeous upbringing. And then my dad was in the mines, so we moved to New South Wales to the Hunter Valley when I was young. And then I sort of became very committed to my my dance and my ballet. So I went to boarding school quite young in Sydney, and it was sort of one of those fame schools. So. Everybody there was sort of in the arts and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great time. I still say that was one of the best sort of few years of my life was, was my time at boarding school. And well, see, I think a lot of kids maybe would, would resent that a little bit. But for you, it was, was it because it was such a contrast from such a, uh, an isolated earlier childhood, you think? Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, one of the biggest things that in you know, high school is obviously, you know, has a, is a traumatic time, I think, for a lot of people. It's a, it's a <clears> difficult time. And so I'd... I kind of come from a, a public high school that was was and I had great friends but it was very clicky and there was sort of a lot of social pressures in that way and then suddenly I went to this school and I where everybody was so accepted for as weird and as wonderful as they were and it was just it was a really ahead of its time it was called the McDonald College and it was really ahead of its time in the way that it embraced so many people and 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 so you never had to deal with kind of the, the bullying stereotypes and the things that came from most high schools. And it was really an exceptional place. So it it gave me a great sort of foundation in in knowing how supportive people had the potential to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I really I really treasured that time. What age did you did you go there? I think I was 15. And, so, and how old were you when you moved from the kind of in the, in the sticks to? To down uh, uh, to New South Wales, I was, and and that was a country town also. But I think I was about nine. nine. Yeah. So in that first nine years, um, was it isolated to the point where, like, it was a farm farmhouse that was no neighbors anywhere near around, and it was just you, or did you have siblings? So uh, we moved around a little bit um, because of my dad's job, but we had neighbors in certain towns, and then for long stretches of time, we'd go to the the sugarcane farm where. There was no one around. It was literally, yeah, I, I don't even know that I, I would have seen people. We'd go into town, which is where my nana lived, um, in the small town. That was my my dad's mom. And so I had cousins and people there. So they were my little bit more socializing and then back out to the to the sugarcane farm yeah. where it was kind of like they just built a bridge. So if the river flooded, you couldn't even get over, you know, and that's where my mother grew up. So, you know, for her it was when it flooded, you couldn't even go to school. So I, I appreciated the fact that they even just had a bridge. Yeah. But there were so many scary animals. You know, my dad was always scared to, to let us out of his sight because, you know, the crocs were in the river and we had these things <laughs> called stonefish. So if you went in the river, the stonefish, they look like stones and you step on them and they can kill you. Wow. So, yeah. Australia is notorious for yeah. being pretty much the most dangerous place in, in the world. <laughs> and, that, uh, and, that, and that had everything, yeah. Were there any close calls when anything growing up? No, I think I was. I mean, we'd see snakes all the time. I remember waking up and there would be snakes that were on the roof. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I had a friend that came over to the house one time and, and she got bit by a redback spider on my from one of my toys. Uh, I remember that was a big drama because if you don't get that anti-venom in the first 30 minutes, you're dead. Um, so I, you know, little <laughs> things like that, but it, it was happening to everyone else, not me. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you have any siblings? I have a sister. She's yeah. two years older. Yeah. How did you guys get along growing up? Uh, we, we, we've always gotten along really great. We couldn't be more different, uh, in the lifestyles that we have and just personality wise and everything, but she is my absolute rock. She yeah. is, um, 
you know, the person I, I, I text with every day uh, and she's just a, a beautiful support and she's in Sydney and uh, has her has her own family there. But she's just, yeah, we couldn't be more different but more alike. Yeah. Was it that way growing up too, even when you were young, you were real tight or was it typical sister, like one minute you're pulling each other's hair and the next minute you're helping her out? I think we definitely had our share of fights. But one thing I, I remember my dad particularly was was really always kind of his big thing was making sure that if we argued we we found a resolution and we made up and he he just never wanted to see us fight and we pretty much got away with doing a lot of things when we were kids but the the thing that would get us into trouble was fighting between each other and coming home sunburned you know <laughs> pretty much everything else was was go do what you want you know i was pretty lucky in that sense but they were the two things well, that yeah I, I get the fighting thing what's the rub with some sun, you know i think it's just that australian sun and and just it, you know the amount of skin cancer i think that's on both sides of my family and so if i went out for the day and didn't wear my sunscreen and came back sunburn it was I, I would be running to hide from my dad i'd be <laughs> stealing my mother's makeup or something that was just his big thing he was yeah. so still is so uh, anal about yeah. not getting sunburn were were they it sounds like they weren't super strict then other than those two things like did did they let you guys kind of yeah, you know, they did. It was funny, especially growing up as a teenager. I look back on it now and, and my parents were were pretty great about, um, you know, letting us go out and fail and come back and listening to us kind of complain. I don't know that I would be as, as free as <laughs> as they were in that sense, but maybe that's because I know all the tricks. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they were really, they were really great about just kind of enabling us to be adults fairly young and and I was working fairly young in professionally with uh, with my ballet and dancing and and doing commercial work and traveling a lot so I yeah I guess I had to sort of grow up very fast and learn to manage things on my own and and then moving away so they were always they were always a great support in that but they they definitely uh probably without knowing it fostered an extremely independent person yeah. well, that's a good that's a good thing for sure yeah uh, so speaking of which, I guess when, once you, you went to high school uh, at the boarding school, at what point did you kind of realize or or find out that that this is what you wanted to do or, or did that not happen then? Like what, what was your, your mentality and train of thought in terms of what you wanted to do when you grow up, so to speak, at that age? Was it this? Was it something different? And, and kind of how did, how did you go from being in, in boarding school for ballet and traveling to uh, the, the, kind of the next phase. Right. So I actually published a book when I was about 12, 13. It really? was a sort of a teen fiction book. I can't even really tell you what it was about. But again, it was written in those long stretches of isolation. And and so I published that. And I always just loved to write. That was something I loved, but never really saw it as something I was going to do as a profession. I loved to create. I loved the arts aspect of it. But I loved... Um, I also just had a great fascination with culture and people and I'd like to think a, a great compassion for, for what people were going through. And so I always wasn't quite sure how to make all those things fit. And so I guess my analogy was to, to hopefully go into something with my ballet or with choreography to do, especially while I was young and, and still sort of physically able, but I ended up falling and breaking my ankle when I was 18. Hmm. So that kind of put a bit of a spanner in the works. And 
I went back to to Sydney and started to study. wasn't still wasn't even really quite sure what I wanted to do, but ended up kind of looking at filmmaking, looking at human rights law, and and sort of really focusing on international relations. I ended up getting an opportunity uh, to go and finish my degree in New York, and I just I was one of those people who just wanted to be out of out of school to get it done as quickly as I could. Um, I just didn't. I I just didn't have an interest in in doing a thousand degrees or kind of being uh, stuck in that academia loophole. So, I went to New York and thought, well, I can I can go and sort of study at, at Broadway Dance and Alvin Ailey and all these places, and then um, finish my degree at the same time, and then kind of figure it out. And I ended up getting this internship at Fox, and I I didn't even know what an internship was. It wasn't something we really have in Australia. And everybody was talking about it, and I thought I want to be part of this too. So I applied for a bunch of different places online, and they called me and said, "Would you like to come in and work in the digital division?" And at that point, that was in two thousand and six. So dot com was still it wasn't the, the the sort of the main focus of of news sites. There was no Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. So that was kind of how I got my start. It was it was sort of random, and then. Yeah, I just I kind of I fell in love. It was a chance for me to write. It was a chance for me to be in a newsroom in New York City and just get a real understanding for how this journalism thing worked. So at the end of that internship, they offered to sponsor me. And so I it just seemed like an opportunity that you shouldn't turn down. So yeah. I took it. What uh, and so what what was that uh, from a sponsorship standpoint? Like what for, for the listener, what does that mean and, and entail? So obviously uh, you hear a lot about the challenges that come with Americans uh, or p- trying to get work in America and trying to get the right visas and they can take a lot of, a long time. And um, at the time that I got mine, I was very fortunate. There was a special agreement that George W. Bush had with the uh, Prime Minister of Australia, John Howard, at the time. And that was for sort of a special working uh, visa between um, Australians and Americans, and it was called an E3 visa. And nobody really knew about it. It wasn't sort of heavily promoted, but as long as you had a a bachelor's degree, then you could get this uh, sponsorship in the US. So it actually was a a pretty uh, easy process for me in that in that sense, I just had to submit some paperwork and and wait around a little bit and uh, and just kind of get that. And I think for the first two or three years, I would have to to go and get it renewed. And then I ended up, yeah, getting my green card. And then I, I became a sit in 2017. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woohoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. When you were growing up, um, I'm curious like what your perception of America was and then how it contrasted from when you actually got here and, and, experienced it so I, I i made my first trip to america i think i was 12 years old um so i, I can, both my parents are just have always had an extreme love for the united states so my mother's aunt she was a war bride so during the second world war when a lot of american soldiers went to the u.s scores of them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds found these australian wives and and brought them back so there's actually this whole community in the u.s that they call war war brides and uh it's fascinating so my aunt you know she was 18 19 at the time uh, meets this uh strapping american soldier and is pregnant on the boat coming back to to the united states so I had, you know, I call her my aunt. She's my mother's cousin, but she she was born here and her and I are extremely close. So she lives in Northern California and she's just the epitome of your, your 1970s flower child who grew up in Oakland and still a, still a hippie on the, on the pot farm in California. So I always had this sort of different um, love and appreciation for America. And then my dad always just kind of, loved America and looked at it as being, you know, Australia's protector in some way, I think, because he saw that if anything had ever happened, and Australia's never had a war on its soil, but if anything ever happened, you know, Australia you know, probably doesn't have the capability, the defence capabilities to necessarily be able to protect the entire country. So he always looked at it as America being a um, kind of a, an important protector. Yeah. And then, so once you actually moved here, I know, you know, you came here at 12, but uh, when you actually moved to New York and, and spent some time integrated into the society as an adult, um, what, what was your, your impression of, of the States at that point? So I think in the beginning, uh, it was interesting for me because one of the, one of the things I noticed was how much more PC the U.S. was compared to Australia. And that was just people were just everything was very literal, every, you know, whereas Australia just tend to be a little bit more maybe laid back and you can kind of crack a joke and not feel that you're going to offend anybody. Um, and we kind of insult each other as a, a, a token of dear. love. Yeah. yeah. So uh, so that was sort of a bit of a culture shock for me in the beginning. I had to kind of learn to that I had to be pretty careful about what yeah. I said and and did. So that was one of the biggest things that I yeah, I really found in in that sense. And, you know, back then, too, it was interesting to me because this was 2006. America was still a really, in many ways, but back then, politically, was so puritanical on both sides. It's sort of you had to have the the wife and the, the kids and the, you know, everything had to sort of line up in this cookie-cutter way. And that was different for me, too, because, you know, Australia just... It, 
we I don't even think we really knew who people were married to when they were running for office or what their kids were or where they went to school. And so anyway, it was just a different uh, sort of sensibility. It's obviously changed a lot uh, since then, but but back then it was still you know pretty uh, pretty formulaic. Would you say that there's still that disparity in Australia? Uh, in contrast to the United States in terms of being more PC or, or is Australia I think up? Australia's ca- well if it hasn't caught up it's definitely catching up yeah yeah is my is my understanding of it yeah uh, to me it uh, breaks my heart to uh, to hear that because I mean the last time I was in Australia was 99 2000 um, and it was it was great plus we were up uh, in Darwin and up in the the Northern Territory and and uh, the, the reason that I, I ended up in uh, I know you guys pronounce it Cairns, which Cairns. Uh, it's spelled Cairns, but yeah. you know, I guess that's the accent difference. <laughs> but so everybody, nobody knew what the hell we were talking about when we were like, we're trying to get to Cairns. They're like, it's not called Cairns. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we, we flew, uh, we lied to our, our officer in charge. And there was just a small handful of us that said that we were going to go to Litchfield National Park and camp for the weekend. Now, mind you, like we're in a SEAL platoon. We're at, we're at Darwin. We're working with the Norforce guys. We're there for like five weeks. And we have one three-day weekend off, and so you know we tell him that we're going to to Litchfield National Park, and we hop on a on a Qantas airplane and fly all the way to the Gold Coast, and uh, did like bar hopping. You and party stayed. at Surface Paradise, probably. I don't even remember. <laughs> it was all a blur. It was all a good a, old Goldie. Yeah. It's the best place. Yeah, but uh, but we did dive on the Great Barrier Reef and, and hung out for a few days and, uh, and made it back without incident. But uh, that that was my experience with it. Yeah. But but back then, I, I guess my point is is that my appreciation for the culture especially up in the north that way was like this place is awesome like nobody gave two shits about anything you know, yeah. everybody's really open and and there, there was just a very refreshing um relaxedness about uh, the way people interacted with each other and, and even us as american soldiers and, and whatever it's just it was really cool you yeah know, really really fun real salty of people yeah uh, all right, so you get sponsored, and, and at that point, professionally, where did you go from there as as they took you on board and kind of under their wing, so to speak? So they wanted to build up a presence in Los Angeles, and so I went, uh, yeah, I was I was happy to go wherever. I mean, I was so in love with New York at that time, you know, it was uh, just this such a big, dazzling place compared to, you know, the country's towns that I'd sort of grown up in, so I was I was really in love with New York, and it broke my heart. I didn't want to go to LA, but I was willing to go wherever I needed to go for work. So I um, came to Los Angeles. It was the summer of 2007. Found a nice little place near the beach and kind of, yeah, pretty much baptism by fire fell into to a life. And I had a column and I knew nobody and was basically told you need to go out and find stories. And so... That's what I did. <laughs> so it was all just local stuff. Uh, no, it was national, but it was, you know, I had to go out and just and build sources. And it was really from the ground up and it was the best training because it was, again, it was pre sort of Twitter. I know so much news is gathered now and social media, but but so much of what I learned to do was that one-on-one interaction. And I learned what it took to build a relationship with somebody, to understand what it meant to, you know, craft an interview and to put a story together and to write it and sort of all these elements. And I had nobody that was kind of backing me other than I just had to go out and do it. And and a lot of it was, you know, it was, it was a sort of a broad range of things. So I did, um, you know, a lot of court reporting and I started doing an investigative stuff. But with that, being in L.A., I had to do a lot of entertainment. 
And yeah, again, you know, it's 2021. And so it was fascinating to me because I, again, I say it was such a great training ground because I really learned to smell bullshit really early. And this just, there is so much bullshit in that world. Um, but you meet great people too. And you sort of learn to navigate the teams that come around people. So, uh, a celebrity that's sort of layered with, you know, their publicists and their managers and there's this and there's this, and everybody's trying to spin things the other way. And I, I think I really had to just navigate, well, what is the sort of the truth behind this? Um, so it was a really, it was a really fascinating, uh, kind of odd start into war reporting well, yeah, I mean, I imagine that I, I can understand, uh, you know, where you're coming from and what you mean by that. And that if you can get through all of that, you know, which which the whole kind of point of it is, is a facade over a facade, you know, kind of thing where. So, yeah, I, I can see where there's there's probably not in terms of keeping you safe while you're learning <clears throat> a, a better training ground for uh, sifting through everything and, and getting to, to the root of, of whatever issue it is that you're talking about. I mean, that, that actually, it seems like that'd be the best place to send anybody to, to learn. Right. I mean, yeah, totally. <clears throat> and as long as you're not trying to be, and which I, you know, don't think I ever was, well, is I think the kiss of death people make in that industry or in any journalism industry really is, is trying to be friends with the subjects. Yeah. So for me, that was, and of course I met great people and I, you know, I still have a few good people that I, I like from that world, but I, I was never trying to be a friend. I was never the starstruck person. And I think that's, that's what makes you, you know, better or, or more efficient at your job than people that are kind of trying to kiss your ass basically i think that's the biggest problem with political uh journalism now is is that that that's what happens is that you know on on both sides admittedly but um is that you've got you know journalists who are interviewing people that they like and they want to promote their agenda and they throw on fucking softballs uh you know and and i think most people can see see right through that i think the left is is historically terrible Mm. Uh, about that because there's so much of the of the media is is such a heavy heavy left bias did you find uh any of your personal politics interfering at all or or um you know manipulating some of your your line of questioning or or did you i guess did you ever find yourself having to keep yourself in check or was it really easy to compartmentalize that i think for me again that was a, a real training ground i remember as an intern in new york city at fox and i remember roger ailes speaking to us as interns and and one of the big things that he instilled at that time was you know we are you're going to present both sides of the story and so from my very beginning the emphasis was always on you are always going to be balanced what you say doesn't matter I remember you know one of a co-worker asking me at the time what my politics were and I said it doesn't matter because it doesn't matter um, and, you know, if we're having a professional conversation, it doesn't matter. So that was, that was always what, in, I, that was the values that were instilled in me from a very young age. So I don't think I had, I struggled with that because everything I looked at, I, I tried to look at it from the lens of this. And, and that's one thing I tried to do in the book that is the lens of how everybody's thinking without judgment. Um, I think the media landscape has changed. So I think that now people are looking to go extreme one way or another and the balance doesn't matter because that's the business model that makes money. Um, And I think that's unfortunate because that's not what journalism has historically been and shouldn't be. 
So that's probably the answer to to my follow up question mm -hmm. is that uh, beyond that, I guess, is there any reason that you can think of beyond the money and the ratings as to why it, it's so skewed that way now? Is there anything else that's driving that? Because to me, I, I agree it's it, it's heartbreaking and, and I find it to be a, a bit of a travesty uh, to to turn on any news outlet really, and, and within seconds you you can see right through what they're trying to quote unquote report and it's not reporting like it, it's, you know, them spinning a, a certain agenda and then they're trying to get you to buy it. Yeah. I mean, I really think it's just business model. It yeah. comes down to mobilizing an audience. Um, so it's coming down to if you have a niche and you can capitalize on a specific audience rather than trying to galvanize an entire population, people just aren't interested in sort of the dry he's you know balanced reporting that the walter always, cronkite here's yeah, what actually happened people people just aren't interested in that yeah and yeah to sort of to to carve out the niche and everything is about a branding and a niche and in today's climate it's you've got to kind of pick a side what what do you see in terms of what the future holds as far as that goes i mean do, do you think that that there can be a, a full circle correction or do you see it just getting worse and worse? To me, there has to be a breaking point where, and I don't know what that is, but I'm curious you being in that business, like where do you mm -hmm. see it going and, and is there a fix? I think it's going to end up becoming so oversaturated on both sides of the sort of with everybody competing with everybody else um, for that same audience share that I think the noise will blow over itself and the social media obviously drives a lot of that too. But I do think that there, there has to be a breaking point. I don't know how or when we'll get there and, and even if it'll be anytime soon, but I do just see sort of that saturation point um, happening. But, but one thing I do think is, is been super great development I've, I've observed over the past year is a lot of the great more individual journalists that are really, I guess, free thinking and fairly independent in their thoughts and, and not wanting to be part of that landscape or all kind of moving to things like Substack. And I think that's great for journalism too, for journalists to be able to take back control of how they want their narrative presented and to make money in that process. We're a capitalist society and be able to pre present their opinions or the news without sort of the the biases from above. So I really hope that a lot more of those independent movements will continue to happen as well. Yeah. No, me too. And I, I hope that uh, that the people can keep up. You know, I, ho I hope that you're right um, oversaturation-wise. I know for me personally, like, it got to a point, you know, even pre-election where I was just like, you know what, I'm, I'm not even going to, like, I just can't listen to any more of it, you know. And I hope and I think that a lot of people are kind of in that same boat where they're just – so over inundated with it that they're just like fuck this i'm not even gonna listen to it yeah. and they just turn it off and and you know at, at some point if enough people do that they're gonna change because they have to or they go out of business you know but yeah and it's a shame because we want to you know we all want to be as informed as we can about life and we want an informed society but i agree it, it does become too much and then when it impacts how you feel your health or whatever it is then yeah it's like fuck it turn it off yeah uh, how many years did you spend uh, out in L.A. doing the? So I was sort of traveling in and out of L.A., but I guess I lived there from 2007. Oh, my gosh, almost 10 years. And I moved back to New York in the beginning of 2017. Okay. Yeah. So from from that time, at what point did uh, did it shift from 
the national U.S. stories and, and kind of uh, Hollywood elites to war correspondent stuff. Walk, walk us through that that transition. So it was sort of over time. I guess the Arab Spring uh, started, uh, well, 10 years now. Um, so that was sort of a big thing that I really engaged a lot with the Middle East on. Um, I'd sort of taken a few language classes and, and traveled a, a bit when I was younger to the area and I had a you know basic working knowledge of Arabic. So I really started to engage with people there and I was just deeply curious as to what was going on and how this whole thing would sort of play out. So I began traveling to the region uh, around that time and covering different things. And then I guess my real sort of foray into it was 2013 with Syria war and then 2014 when the ISIS onslaught happened in Iraq. And that was sort of when I really dove headfirst into that um, and it became all, all consuming. And that was, that was sort of then my focus for, for much of the next four or five years was trying to, to understand how it had happened. Yeah. Was there kind of a, an initiation, if you will, of, of like boots on the ground in a place where you were kind of looking around like, holy shit, how did I get myself in, into this? Was was there like a, a one moment where that happened or was it kind of gradual yeah. getting your feet wet? Uh, it was fairly baptism by fire. And I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that um, I had some, you know, I had great bosses at the time who were very supportive of of me going out and doing it. And I had a great mentor. He was a foreign correspondent at Fox by the name of Dominique. And he'd just come back from Pakistan, Afghanistan. And he just sort of said to me, the only way you do it is you do it. Um, and I know that can sort of sound daunting and, and reckless in some ways to people, but it's it's really the truth. You know, have a, have a basic medical knowledge, know what you're getting into, understand what you're doing. And at some point, you've got to start somewhere with it. So I think... Uh, my first sort of real coverage of these was uh, probably the Gaza War in 2014, and that was that was baptism by fire. I was sort of in the area, um, and so I would sort of cover kind of, I guess, the best of my abilities on both sides of that conflict, which is obviously supercharged, um, and you know, people on both sides feeling, you know, very uh, frustrated with what was happening, and that ended up. That was the summer of 2014, and then from there I went went to Iraq after that. So to compare uh, Gaza to Iraq, um, how, how would you kind of rate both places in terms of, of your your feeling of safety when you're on the ground? Uh, I think obviously uh, the Gaza war is is a lot more uh, you know urban in the sense it's everything's sort of happening all at once and within a small kind of proximity. Um, I don't think that I was ever super afraid in those situations. Um, I think that I, I, maybe that's when I realized that it was, you know, it was a profession that I thought that I could do because I was always calm in places where other people were panicking. Um, so I, I didn't, I didn't feel a huge sense of fear in that. And then I guess even with Iraq, it was the same situation. There were obviously moments of fear, but I think if I was to look at my career more holistically, I was always less afraid of, say, a terrorist group or or the, those kind of things than I was of of a government that can come and snatch you up at any moment or or 
that was that the things that you can't see and the things that you don't know and usually not even in a conflict zone were the things that exhausted me from from worry yeah so when when you're there uh, in each capacity or, or no matter where you're at, what is what does your crew look like? How many how many of there are? My crew is me, 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 and I. Um, so yeah, obviously as a writer, I'm not going in with uh, cameraman or crews. I no security. I mean, yeah, I, I I made a decision very young in my early days. I guess I should say in my career where I I didn't I felt that it was a better for me to not only to get the story, but also from a security point of view to be as under the radar as possible. And cause so much of what I wanted to do would was sort of that more undercover style of things. And, and I definitely couldn't have done that if there were you know a bunch of sort of people around me. Uh, and I think that would have made me more of a target because at that point ISIS was kidnapping journalists and journalists were the target. So, I think that would have been a, a dangerous move. So I, I decided that the approach I wanted to take was very under the radar. I'd built up some really great relationships. I trusted a lot of people. I have what we call fixes. So fixes are people that you, um, locals usually come through referrals, you pay them, they sort of set up logistics and they set up drivers for you and they set up interviews and they sort of support you in that way. And so I've always been really fortunate to have amazing fixes that I've just developed these really close bonds with over the time. And so depending on the trip, um, you know, in Syria and other places, it's usually just me and, and my fixer and, and then, you know, his friend who's the driver. So, so with the fixer thing, I'm curious, like logistically, you know, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners are that, that are outside of this world, myself included, obviously like you're not just showing up and being like, Hey, I'm Holly. I'm here to do some story. Like how, how do you line that up? There's a huge amount of planning that goes into it. And who, and who does that? I yeah, guess. That's that was all on me. I was literally planning everything from A to B so that I didn't, I didn't have help in that. So, you know, it was always harder when you're going into a new place too, because then you have to try to reestablish new connections and call on people who, you know, are from people and, and, and sort of work it that way. Um, but yeah, you, you generally seek a recommendation for a fixer. So for example, I'm going to Baghdad. Who do I know is there? Who's worked there before? I may ask other journalists. I may ask people in the humanitarian sector. I'll talk to locals on the ground and say, do you know anyone who does this kind of work? Um, and so that's usually how it works. And then you, you, you kind of just have to, to trust and do as much vetting on that person as you can. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard in that part of the world to really vet. Uh, so you just have to kind of trust the referrals and where they're coming from and, and speak to them and, and just hope that, that they're going to have your best interests and you aren't going to be sold out. And that has definitely happened to, to journalists and other people, fortunately, never to me, but, um, it happens, but fixes are extraordinary and we wouldn't be able to do our jobs without them. And they really, they risk their lives to, um, to tell the story, to support you, to often in, you know, in the face of a lot of hostility. And for me, I've always felt a very deep, deep connection to a lot of my fixes because you see firsthand what they're willing to sacrifice for someone that they don't even know. And you see their, you meet their families and, and you know that you have the privilege of leaving. I have the privilege of, of going home or, and getting out. Whereas, you know, for them, they have to stay. And if, if somebody finds out that they were working for an American or, you know, their lives, their families' lives, everything they've ever had is at, is at risk. So 
I think fixes are, are such extraordinary parts of the story and they often they don't get credit in the stories because that would also be unsafe for them to uh to have to have credit in a story but they're doing so much of the work in trying to support you and get you the right interviews and, and help you bridge those connections are, are they typically paid Yes. And, and yeah. I don't know if you can mention or want to. You know, to, it really depends where you are <clears throat> and I guess how in demand that particular fixer is. But, you know, in Iraq, in a place like that, you're probably looking at, at you're paying someone maybe 200, 300 a day, which is a lot for them. Um, and and so that, you know, the work is really sought after by them because that, that is, is a lot for them. But, you know, in the grand scheme of, of what they're sacrificing for it, it's it seems very little. I'm assuming Fox pays that, right? Like if you're negotiating. So yeah, I mean, if you're depending on, you know, where your story is and it's different for each news outlet and it's different, obviously, if you're freelancing. I've also done a lot of the writing projects where I've just, I've paid out of pocket because things have changed last minute. And, you know, when you're dealing with corporate stuff, it's sometimes, sometimes easier just to pay out of pocket. So, but I, I have no qualms about doing that with my fixes because I just, I've always found them to be such really extraordinary people. Yeah. Um, as far as still talking about kind of logistics, I'm fascinated by, and just because I, I just know nothing about it, yeah. but like would, would Fox or whoever you're working for at that, at that point, provided you're not freelance, independent, whatever, would they say, Hey, uh, you know, we want you to go here or find a place to go. You have a budget of X number of dollars in this amount of time. Is that kind of. So usually how I used to work it and I had a great, uh, great relationship with, with my previous boss in that sense who had worked a lot in the foreign space as well. So I would sort of pitch an idea of, I wanted to go here to cover X, Y, Z and sort of pitch, you know, usually a bunch of stories and maybe two or three would get approved. And then, of course, when I was there, I'd do a bunch of other ones as well. But I usually went in with a sort of a base idea of what it was that I was trying to cover while I was there because that enabled me to then sort of look for the right connections, look for the right aid groups, look for the right interview subjects, whatever it may be. So I did have some structure and I wasn't just kind of going in and, uh, going in cold. So I had an idea and then it would just come down to, I usually sort of put together some sort of a budget. Okay. This is the flight. This is the hotel. This is where I'm going to stay. Um, you know, and basically this is how much this fixer costs. And so there's a lot of even just kind of planning. And then a lot of the time it can, it can go nowhere. But, um, once I guess, I guess that green light from the sort of basic outline and I then was sort of able to then have to really hone in on um on how to make everything happen and i think the hardest thing for me sometimes was trying to translate uh, to to people back home you know if i was on the ground there okay just because somebody told me that i could cross the euphrates on a boat and go to syria on wednesday i may get all the way there and then they've gone for the day to take a nap and they're not coming back until saturday so you know so i was always explaining like i'm on middle east time right now i can't change the situation you can only be patient with it and so i think that was always you know a little bit of a contention i was like you just need to bear with me (laughs) the the god willing approach to everything yeah uh i'm curious and and you know i'm sure it changes just like uh, or it varies rather from from trip to trip but if you're by yourself um and you're you're relatively mobile you're kind of bouncing all over the place 
what do you pack and how do you carry it? I, I take as little as possible. Yeah, which yeah. which makes sense. But so, I mean, is, is everything in a backpack or? Pretty much. So everything's in a backpack. Um, I used to, uh, I used to sort of take my armor and take stuff, you know, as journalists, you buy your own generally. Um, so I used to, but I just found that to be so laborious and so many problems at the airport with that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah. Woo-hoo! Often thinks about the old boring Sarah yes. and wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. What is this What's for? What are you for? doing? Yeah. yeah. So I just usually, especially with Iraq, I, I made some good sort of connections there with um, some contractors and other friends and things on the ground. So I usually just sort of arrange to to pick something up if I needed it from them instead. Yeah. Uh, and the same with Afghanistan. So that made my life a lot easier because then I could just kind of go in with with my backpack, you know, with my usually carried a couple of different iPhones and then bought a burner phone when I was there. And then, um, yeah, just a pair of boots, a pair of pants, a T-shirt, you know, you're a buyer in case you went to the south or somewhere that was much more conservative. Um, and then a bunch of notebooks, and that was that was kind of pretty much it. So literally like one pair of pants, one T-shirt? Yeah. And then, I, I you know, I still always tried to find time to work out when I was there too, like, you know, running up and down a street or something, whatever it was. So my workout stuff too. Yeah. All in one backpack, like yeah. a toiletry bag, and any special items that you take, or you try to keep the personal I just, stuff. I up? try to keep everything as minimalist as possible, yeah. and try to just figure it out that I had to adapt with whatever the situation was when I was there, and yeah. uh, and go with the flow. Any um, accommodations made in terms of the um, like from a technology standpoint? Mm-hmm. Uh, all notebooks or were they, did you carry iPads like any any electronic or was it all pen and paper I try I didn't I usually didn't even take a laptop and yeah. that was more from a security point of view because they're so much easier to break into than um than your phone or, or yeah. other things and so it was just kind of one less stress for me so back then I, w- I would be filing entire stories on a phone uh-huh. you know in the blackberry in the beginning which was way easier to type so yeah, yeah I'd file for my blackberry and then later uh, in, on an iPhone and yeah and that was always just the way I did it because it felt that like I could do that from anywhere 
and that I could get, you know, if I had the cell data, I could get a connection somewhere. Whereas laptop, you sort of, you know, you're relying on Wi-Fi, which is sketchy at best. And it was just the way to do it. And I could, you know, I had a, a folder, sort of like a, sort of like a Dropbox, but a little bit larger. And I just try to dump as many photos and videos into that shared folder so that anyone on the other end could access it before anything was deleted. Yeah. So that was the other thing you also had to be watchful about was, you know, you never know when you're going to go through an airport and someone's going to want to delete your content. So did you have me, that happen? Uh, I had one situation where they did delete some stuff, but they weren't very smart about it because they thought, you know, they made me watch, they watched me delete stuff. Um, but not empty then, your trash. And then not empty my trash. So, <laughs> yeah. I know you know that one. Yeah. So that was sort of my only, but again, you know, I did, I wasn't carrying cards or usbs or anything like that so um i was pretty fortunate like that but yeah i did i did just try to 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 put it in that folder and, and dump it out when i could so that it didn't didn't cause me any problems yeah did you uh, ever carry like a pocket knife or any, or any type of of weapon or self-defense anything no because <laughs> well yeah i mean it's sort of that it, carrying a carrying a gun first of all as a journalist is is a no-no because you're then considered a combatant. And the idea, going back to the Geneva Convention, is that a journalist is a um, yeah, is a, a neutral observer to a situation. And I've always tried to really maintain that. I know some journalists have, have armed themselves, and I, I just think that that can potentially danger other journalists as well because even though, yes, we are targets, then we're also viewed um, as sort of, being a combatant so yeah i usually tried to be to not to not take anything like that and obviously you know i think a knife is probably okay but i didn't do that because again i just wanted to maintain that complete sense of uh of of neutrality where i could yeah did you ever have any close calls uh as far as you know people whether it's governments or, or ISIS fighters or uh, really any situation you were at where it was literally like could have gone either way and you just barely, barely got out of it type type of thing. Um, yeah, I think for me more, some of those kind of more hair, I mean, there was definitely a couple of situations in Iraq um, where the, the building I was in, in Sinjar was, was being shelled and, and yeah, several of the sort of the Peshmega soldiers that were at the front died. And I guess I never felt definitely not invincible, but I just, I never felt that sense of that it was, it was fear that it was, that it was going to, to get me, I guess. And that's maybe, maybe naive or maybe not the right way to view a situation. But I think even in some of those hair raising situations, I just, I felt what I think is a healthy sense of fear, but I never felt panic or I never felt that it was going to be directed at me. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it was hard. kind of a recurring theme yeah. with, with that in terms of your ability to, like you mentioned earlier, stay calm when everybody else is panicking. Do you think that um, growing up in, in rural farmland Australia with so many exterior uh, threats mm. animal wise like where do you th think that that comes from because very yeah. few people possess that especially just naturally right I think for me part of it was acceptance that I'd made a decision to go into that situation and that nobody 
told me I had to do it. Nobody had forced me to. And I think I was just, I was in awe of the people that lived there that dealt with it day in and day out and they didn't complain. And that was their life. They couldn't leave. And so I thought very early on for me to complain or for me to, you know, cause a drama about something that would be a that would just be sort of a, sh- a shameful thing given that the people there, you know, this is their life. Yeah. And who was I to, to kind of go in there and, and I guess see myself as more important than them. And so I always viewed it with a sense of acceptance that this was a, a decision that I'd made to be there. And I think it's a lot harder for people, your friends and your family and people who love you to understand that they think it's crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? You don't need to do this. You need to stop doing this. But when it's you, it you make the decision and you do it. And I, I still feel that everything always looks more frightening from the outside yeah. in a way. And as, as frightening as situations can be, even inside the situation, even when chaos is happening, um, yeah, there is that sort of sense of calm and, and rational thinking of how am I going to get in and out of this um, that I try to possess. But, but again, I always found that my anxieties were triggered by things I didn't know. So, you know, in Syria, I remember being there and it was, I'd been there for less than 24 hours and then that's when Trump launched, I think it was the second round of of um, a fighter jets to kind of take out those chemical compounds after another chemical attack. And so there was a lot of sort of chaos and unknowns and, and I remember I then started to get strange calls on my phone and people hanging up and, um, you know, and whether it was or it wasn't, I don't know, but immediately my mind went to, oh, this is the Macabre, this is the Syrian intelligence. I know I'm in here, you know, illegally essentially and, and they're going to find me and, you know, Trump was doing this. I just, and that triggered a panic, a little bit of a panic for me because then I just, it was this exhaustion of unknown and everywhere I sort of went, I, I was waiting for the uh, the cracked leather jacket and the you know the aviator to to come my way and knock on the door and so that was sort of an anxiety that I that was where I found that my kind of anxieties were triggered more by that and I went to Iran as well and again that was just exhausting and it was this beautiful country and beautiful people and beautiful place but the entire time you just have this sort of fear of could there be a knock at the door and, you know, am I going to spend the next 10 years in Evan prison? And that was where my, I guess, neurosis more came out. Yeah. But I mean, I, I can, can appreciate and certainly understand your viewpoint on being far less worried about some rogue terrorist group and, and much more worried about a government coming and imprisoning you for being a spy or, you know, whatever yeah. trumped up, made up charge. Um, to me, I, Iran would be a, a terrifying place in that regard, Yeah, uh, you know, for any American citizen because yeah. it's, you're just so so much on their home turf and in, in their stadium, so to speak. That that uh, you know that that would be hard to relax ever there. I think. Yeah. How, how much time did you spend there? So I went there. Actually, I was I was very clever. I I did it just the week before I became a citizen. Ah. So I knew like sort of this was my last chance to go and visit Iran, and I was you know, it was one of those, always a fascinating place. It's this mysterious place of, and so I went in the summer of of 2017. And 
for weeks leading up to it, I was, I was really nervous because um, I was going alone. And, you know, so I went and on my Aussie passport and I arrived and I, I got a visa code issued from a, a, you know, a tourist agency or something sent to me. So I had this tourist code and I landed in Tehran. It was a Friday, Friday night. And everybody's getting their visas, like visa stamps in the back rooms and except for me. So I can hear people going through and through and I can hear them arguing and then the guy sort of comes back out and starts asking me questions about where I worked and what I did and I I never want to lie. So um, I was honest, but you semantics. I'm a writer, and, you know, and I, I work for 21st Century Fox. I'm here as a tourist, da-da-da-da-da. And I can hear them continuing to argue and argue. And I had, meanwhile, I had all these stamps in my my passport from Yemen to, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, wherever it was. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's going to look at these stamps and they're going to think, what, who is this girl and what is she doing? But I actually think the stamps probably worked in my favor because they probably looked at it and thought, oh, well, she just likes to travel to strange places. <laughs> so they gave me my visa and I just, I ran through the airport before anyone could change their mind. And it was a strange, cause again, I was sort of alone and I, I met up with a, you know, a really lovely tour guide and, and a couple of British girls. And it was interesting because uh, we traveled, you know, we went around and saw a lot of the, the sort of the sites and, and Iran is just a stunning country. And uh, we went for the north to Yazd and Isfahan and to the Zoroastrian temples there and then Persopolis, like all these just incredible places. Um, I'm a big lover of Persian poetry. So I took this 16 hour ride on a one of those Shah era trains that takes forever uh, to the top of the country just to you know, collect the Hafez poetry from his hometown. So I had a, a beautiful experience, but I was extremely nervous. And it was funny because I was allowed to sort of change my itinerary because Australians could kind of do anything, whereas the British girls that I ended up meeting, Canadians, Americans and Brits have to, are not even allowed to step out of the hotel really? without a minder. Yeah, so it's it's a um, different set of rules, I guess. But I had a great time and then um, I, I was relieved to leave. So I was there for about two weeks. And then I was really relieved to leave and I, I noticed when I got on the plane that – my seat that I checked in on wasn't the seat that I'd been assigned on my boarding pass, but I didn't argue it. I didn't care. I just wanted to get out. And this lovely guy is sitting next to me and he starts asking me all these questions immediately where, you know, what were you doing? Who, you know, who were you seeing? Da, 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 da. And I was just sort of playing Aussie backpacker. Is he speaking in Persian or English? In English, yeah. perfect English. And, and then I started asking him questions. What are you doing in Dubai? And he couldn't really answer them. And, <laughs> I got sick of his questions, so I put my headset in and just kind of tuned out and slept for the rest of the trip and then woke up when we landed and, you know, he says to me, well, it was lovely to meet you, Holly, and I looked back and I said, well, Ali, it was lovely to meet you too and I never told you my name. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> And right. just walked uh, off. So they, they caught up to me eventually, yeah. I guess. But, but. So that was from Tehran to Dubai, that flight? Yes, so yeah. So, I mean, at that point, it couldn't have done anything. No, no, anyway, nothing. That's Dubai. nothing. I think it was just the check-in. But Iran was just, yeah, I'm so glad I went there. I, you know, hopefully at some point in time I'll get to go again because um, it really just, it's it's a stunning it's a stunning place. Yeah. Do you speak Persian also? No, I don't. I mean, you speak a fair bit of Arabic though, right? Yeah, I've lost a lot. I need to be better about getting yeah. pre getting prepped back on that. But yeah. 
um, hearing of, of the airplane trip and just being there, uh, you know, Brits, Canadians and, and, uh, Americans not being able to step outside their hotel without a, you called it a minder. Yeah. They have to have sort of the way the government, yeah, the government sort of assigns people go through a course in Iran to kind of become these tour guides where they have to go through a sort of a government mandated course of learning, I guess the history and then. They have to file reports back and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Did you ever find in, in all of your travels staying at, you know, lots of different hotels, I, I'm assuming of all different types of magnitudes in terms of the opulence or, or not, um, to where like you came back and your shit had been gone through, like it was obvious that people had been in your rooms? Um, I had one and that was one of the early situations where, and that's when I stopped taking my laptop Um and that was in that was in Baghdad, I want to say. And that was when I, I had my laptop, and uh, you know I'd put as much security stuff on there as I can. And I I did come back and see that somebody, you know, uh, someone had been trying to to get into it and yeah. use a different password, and they left their name in the, oh, wow. the server thing. So it was pretty terrible. <laughs> but after that, that's I was some, just like, all right, this is a joke. That's a professional job there. Yeah, but I. Yeah, I always, I mean, obviously carried my essentials with me and there's pretty much pretty little to go through, but I don't think I, I noticed anything too much after that. Yeah. Um, and, and going through your book, obviously it would take, excuse me, uh, two days to, to outline all the things that are worth talking in, in, in there, which uh, obviously we don't have time for. So I thought uh, maybe a better way instead of pulling tons of excerpts like I normally do because to me in, in going through it it was almost like the the whole book is that you know is excerpts that are they're kind of worth reading and, and some incredibly powerful scenarios that you've uh, been witness to I, I would love if, if you could kind of chronologically uh, as best you can from a kind of a reader's digest shortened version uh, walk us through, you know, from from the start of when you really started covering ISIS heavy until until you finally left, uh, if, if you can. Mm. So, my my book trajectory started with just going over there, and I was just taking interviews, taking notes, and all these notebooks were piling up. And this was starting in 2014. So, the book that I ended up putting together was really. I guess it's those raw notes put together and they're put together in a chronological order. So we're dating from, from 2014 through to the end of 2018. And it's really just trying to tell the story from a micro level in the sense that I really believe human stories and trying to understand what people on the ground are going through and the things that they're telling you and that micro picture can tell a really macro uh, give people a macro understanding of what this war is and what is happening and, and how it's come to be. So I think through those individual excerpts, which I call memos, and they're all told from people from every different perspective that I could find. So you're looking at, uh, you know, Iraqi, Kurdish, Syrian, American military expe- uh, perspectives, as well as Yazidis that have been taken as sex slaves, as well as refugees, displaced people, um, the terrorists themselves. I interviewed a number of them, um, terrorist wives. So I'm really just trying to piece together how how people view this situation and what happens and kind of pull out some of those details and those really human stories that I think get really overlooked in a very sanitized uh, news format. And so to me, that is what I really tried to do with the book was, was highlight 
what is every day like when you're dealing with this? When you have to leave your home, what do you take with you? What do you tell your children about why you are leaving? How do you explain um, you know, why your religion is targeted? How do you come back and try to reintegrate into society when you know, you've spent three years as a, a sex slave or how, um, you know, what services are available to people? What are the international community doing? How, what is the military planning behind this? What, why is one city, uh, you know, being liberated when another city 20 miles no one's even looking at? So I just tried to kind of understand a lot of the burning questions I think can help us paint a broad picture of a situation without, sort of copious um, sort of statistics, which I think, you know, again, sanitize the situation and remove us from what's happening. Whereas when you can, you know, give a name and a face and, and explain where this person grew up and who they are and what they're going through, I think there's things from that that we can all learn and we can all resonate with. Was there um, situations there that, that really shocked you or was it kind of you, you got numb to seeing a lot of the things that you see? Because, I mean, reading about especially the way you talk about uh, the smell of, of burning death, mm. you know, and, and how that there's a, a distinct right. flavor to that, that you, that you always recognize and never forget, or, uh, you know, people with, with the, all of their hair burned off, you know, situations like that, that I think a lot of people, and again, I encourage everybody to read this book to really give you uh, perspective outside of, of such a sheltered life that we, that we live here and, and probably hopefully, give people a massive appreciation for the country that we live in because so, so few people have it because they're, they are so sheltered from stuff like this. But, um, were there instances where you find, found yourself even after years in where you were like, Holy shit, mm. or, or did you just get used to it and become kind of completely numb and that it was just normal? I think there was a, uh, there's definitely two parts. So I've always said to myself in starting this that if I ever got to a place where I felt that I wasn't having a normal emotional reaction to something, then I needed to take a break or I needed to stop. And that was always the thing for me, especially as a writer. I wasn't, I know this is idea where journalists have to be super professional and super this, but you know, if you're sitting with a mother who's just had her, her babies killed or whatever it is, and, and that's not going to upset you, I don't want to get to that place where something like that isn't going to affect me. I do think when you're immersed in it and day in and day out and day in and each story you hear gets worse than the next story. I don't know at that point that I became numb to it, but I think that I it just started to feel very hopeless. Like what what am I doing? What is this? How can you know how much more can I take in? And during the Iraq trips, you know, it was, it was almost some of the moments that you don't necessarily expect to break you in a way that do. So, for example, it took a I talk about in the book, but you know, digging up mass graves or or things like that. That by sort of standard definitions, people think that they're going to have the most impact on you. But I actually found for me, the things that really stuck with me weren't weren't necessarily those things it were some of the smaller things like I remember being in Sinjar City one time and and every you know this city was not livable it was absolutely you know apocalyptic wasteland and 
the only people that were living there were a few soldiers who had sort of taken over a base there and, and were kind of using that as a, a makeshift hospital. And I stayed there for a while with them um, on the roof and you couldn't you couldn't even walk across the street because it was just it was filled with landmines and I went and somehow found this man that had moved back into his old house that was bombed because he couldn't afford to continue to stay at these displaced camps and he had two young children and I remember you know there was no water there was no electricity they just there was nothing and it was freezing and I went to talk to him to find out you know why he'd come back and why he didn't stay at the camp and and he told me that his wife and the children's mother, they were Yazidi and that she'd been taken as a sex slave. And, you know, one of the ISIS fighters who or captors who had her had called him at some point and said, you know, you can pay me $10,000 and I'll give her back to you. And this poor farmer, this illiterate farmer, and he walked around his village and he begged and pleaded and and people really come together in times like that. And so everybody's, you know, selling whatever they could to get any of the girls back, mind you, and we're talking thousands and thousands of them. But in his case, it's, you know, everybody scrambled together and it took him months and eventually he scrambles together the money and he calls the captor back and says, I have the money. And the guy says, oh, well, the price is doubled now. So... And he just knew that there was nothing more he could do to to bring his wife and, and his children's mother home. And he's telling me this and I I just broke down because I thought, I can't even help you. I can't recommend an NGO that can help you. I can't give you any money out of my pocket. I can't really do anything because that would be considered funding terrorism. And I just felt extremely helpless, I think, in that situation. And that really was a defining moment for me because I thought really all I can do is, is tell your story. And But then what is the point of your story if nobody can really help you? And so that was something that I had to toy with a lot and I still toy with a lot. Um, so, yeah, moments like that for me were, were quite defining. I think I did get to a point maybe later in my career working in Africa and where I started to to feel numb to stories that I should have had a better reaction to and I did take a break from those. But, uh, but yeah, I just think more than the numbness, it was the helplessness that impacted me. So in that, did that change your, your ability to report or I guess maybe how, how you reported? I mean, because to me, if to, to see something like that, right there in front of you and, and realize the gravity of, of what he's going through and, and the situation that you are, you are in. I can't help but imagine that that, that has to play a, a role in, in impacting how you're reporting, you know, mm-hmm. because if you go from optimist and, and reporting because you feel like you're making a difference to where you're like, fuck, it doesn't matter what I do. Nothing is going to change. I mean, that, that can't not impact how you report. Right. Or, or right. Did, did you? No, I think it, it, it made me, <clears throat> There was a frustration element. I think once I'd gotten myself through the frustration element of kind of wanting to just give up on it to some degree, I I reconciled with myself that that he was telling me his story because he wanted his story to be heard. And to them, that's a sense of justice. Yeah. And so these are people who will never see justice for what's happened to them. They will never see accountability. No one will ever have to pay a price and everyone else's lives will move on. But if their story can be told and reach somebody, 
that, however significant that may seem, is important to them. And they wouldn't have told me their story if they didn't think that was a sense of justice to know that at least their wrongs were being weren't being hidden from the world. And I think that's the biggest thing for people is everybody feels that they're suffering in silence and that can be the most frustrating aspect of it. And people want to be heard. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think of, of again, um, you know, here in the, the United States where 99% of the population just has the, the blind understanding that if, if they're wronged, really in any way, even like, hey, the McDonald's got my fucking drive through order wrong, that they can call the police and something will happen. Right. I'll post it on Twitter now or tag yeah. the airline when the seat's wrong. Or, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and to me, it's just it's it's a so another sobering reminder, not that I needed any, but they're always good, um, you know, to hear and that things like that. It's just like it, it just to me, it's what what gives me heartburn about um kind of the the media situation and just our our culture here is is how big of a of a a contrast there is and and how blind people are uh to how most of the rest of the world is or or a large portion of it you know Mm -hmm. and again just that understanding or or not even understanding i would say that a a sense of entitlement that if something happens to me i call a number and it gets fixed right fucking now yeah you know and that's just how it works and, and and i deserve that you know whereas in so many other places, like, I mean, to, again, like to, for any family to uh, imagine a scenario where a group of masked gunmen come to your house, kick your door in, take your mom, take your children, shoot your dad, burn your fucking house down and nothing happens, mm. you, you know, like th- that's a, a harsh <clears throat> reality in, in so many places. Totally. And that's what I used to explain to people when they come back. Imagine living in a place, you know. As flawed as the U.S. may be, as difficult as, uh, you know, as imperfect as it may be, we have hospitals we can go to when we're, when we need to. We have police and 911 we can call when we're in desperate help. We have a justice system that enables, you know, to the best of its, and again, it's flawed, but it, it exists. And these people just have none of those institutions. There's, they have nothing to protect them. And when they are wronged, there's nobody to go to to complain. There's nobody to go to to seek protection. And that just has to be, I just can't imagine what that life is like yeah. permanently. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, like you said, like you can leave, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's always that safety net in the back of your mind always. of like, hey, I can fucking leave right now if I wanted, whereas they can't. Yeah. You know, that that is their, their world, their reality. And that, again, I, just, I, I wish... Uh, more, I wish everybody here understood that, you know, and and I wish that they didn't take for granted and bicker about the things that that we bicker about here when, when it could be not even a thousand times worse. I mean, I don't even know how you put a a number X times, you know, uh, worse than that. But um, from the time that you first started reporting um, and, uh, you know, amongst your, your travels throughout the region, from kind of a macro standpoint, did you see uh, or how did you see the shift, if at all, of um, of kind of how how the the war shaped and then how ISIS took a huge stronghold and then and then diminished down? And, and I can only assume and in, in having been a, a spectator through all of that living here in the United States, just just watching what would happen. Um, 
you know, kind of the, the contrast, if, if it was noticeable on the mm. ground between the years that Obama was in office versus when Trump, because to, to me, and again, if, if I'm flawed, please uh, correct my, my assumption here. It seems like not long after um, Trump was, was elected that, uh, that there was kind of a, a different, mm. a new sheriff in town, so to speak, and, and uh, things changed, it, it seems pretty dramatically. What was your take living through all of that? So I definitely think that, and I talked to a lot of generals and a lot of commanders uh, from the U.S. and, and from uh, NATO while I was there, and I, I guess what they appreciated was when Trump came in, he gave the very clear mandate was you're there to defeat ISIS. Um, you're not there to, you know, do a bunch of other things or, take out Assad or whatever it may be that a lot of people in the international community would have liked to see happen, you're there to take out ISIS. And I think they appreciated that very clear mandate that enabled them to to get that job done um, and complete that job. And, and we can sit here and we can argue about, but ISIS still exists and they still have cells here and they still control a village here. But generally speaking, you know, they obviously have no control over major cities anymore. And they're still a threat, absolutely, but it's more wiping them out of apps, uh, that actual territorial control. And I think that, that Trump deserves credit for sort of giving that, that clear mandate that I think when there are too many goals in a situation, can you achieve all of them? When you have one, you kind of know what you're going for. And so I think that that, that was sort of appreciated on the ground in that sense. Um, but, you know, having said that, you know, a lot of the the bulk and the heavy lifting was also done under the Obama administration and in, in at least sort of plotting out and beginning uh, that huge operation to to get them out um, as well. And I think, you know, I think, you know, I was trying to sort of raise alarm bells early on, but and I think it's a problem now and going to be a problem going forward, and that is the with the rise of ISIS coming, the rise of the uh, Iranian-backed militias in Iraq. And I think that is... That is going to definitely uh, be a point of contention in, in how the U.S. sort of decides what policy it wants to take from here forward. Yeah. D did you notice a shift personally on the ground, I guess, during that time where it was like things are different now? Like did you see a tide turning, so, uh, if you would? It's funny. In the beginning, what I noticed a lot was this sort of idea where people – automatically assumed that the U.S. was going to come in immediately and almost this superhero Captain America figure that was going to just kind of wipe out this group and, and give them all the weapons they needed to also do the job and, and this would all be over in a few weeks. And when it wasn't, you'd sort of get a year in, 18 months in, and people lost, you felt that loss of hope. You started to suddenly think that, it was never going to change and people there were just that sense of hopelessness or the belief or the optimism that they felt that it was going to all sort of be over very quickly had very much left and it was sort of this very deep deep trauma and deep sense of sadness of of feeling like it, it was just what life was and then I think then subsequently in the year that sort of came after that when things were moving and, and ISIS started to fall fairly quickly um, once you started to see that happen, I guess people started to, you know, to believe that things could change. But I caveat that with even after 
even after ISIS left, I can't tell you the amount of people that I talked to that attempted to go home only to realize that there wasn't anywhere to go. There was no home or there was still some, you know, form of a threat where they were living or there was no electricity. And so people were just returning to the camps because the aftermath of it was so, uh, you know, we, we don't look at the aftermath. And even now, years later, the resources, when something's not in a headline, when ISIS is no longer the headline news, the resources dwindle. So you're looking at situations in camps and places and cities that are just completely demolished and there is zero help for anyone. And so it's almost a worse situation for a lot of them now uh, than it was even sort of at the height of ISIS where there was money coming in or there was um, you know, camps that were being set up and things like that. They've all gone away, but the problem is still there. And that is that... Everything was just wiped to the ground. So it's not maybe not as dangerous, but even worse in terms of infrastructure and, and what their daily life is like. Yeah. yeah. And I think for a lot of it, especially the Christian communities <clears throat> in Iraq, they feel just as threatened by the Iranian-backed militias that are there than they did by ISIS. So mm. you know, these are for them, it's just it's a, it's a new threat, different different label, I guess. Yeah. Did you, this is a little off topic, but uh, when you mentioned uh, Iran-backed militias, how did you view the the uh, killing of Soleimani? Oh, I thought that was that was great. Yeah. Did, did <laughs> I mean, that man just, he was extremely smart military man. It was involved, I think, very heavily in a lot of those operations on the ground, uh, especially in Syria. Um, very calculating. And, yeah, I... I think he, yeah, he really was. When they call him the mastermind, it's for a reason. Yeah. And, and so despite losing losing him, you still see those groups uh, continuing to expand in Iraq. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're Iraqis. You know, it's this misconception they're from Iran. They're not. They're Iraqis themselves who are loyal to Iran as opposed to Baghdad. Um, but they've been brought into the umbrella of the Baghdad government, which means they're getting salaries uh, from Baghdad as part of the, the larger armed forces. But they have no allegiance to, to Iraq itself. Um, Why is that? Um, I mean, is it because it's not the old Baghdad and, and they find more common ground with... With religious, with the sort of the Shia religious uh, sector. And so... Um, that is that is Tehran, who's the sort of the epitome of that. They they view, you know, it's religion over country, I guess. Lucky Land Casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Ah, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained covering ufos cryptids conspiracies and the paranormal real people real encounters so come with us on the journey into the unknown ufo chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps i'll see you soon in that sense and uh and it's control and money and all the other things that come with corruption and power but I think that is, it's a problem that 
the U.S. has to contend with because they are very well armed and they are very well trained and they are um, they are also very well respected, I must add, by a lot of Iraqis in the sense that people looked at them as being, you know, I remember when I was there, someone described it to me as, you know, you have the Iraqi army, which are, you know, okay or improved at, at a lot of the combat and things, but to them, the Hashtashabi, which is the Iranian militias, they're the street fighters. They're the ones who who don't give a shit about the rules and what they're told and there's no rules of engagement and they don't give a fuck what happens, but they're going to go in and they're going to bust ISIS's ass. And in the places that they were allowing the Hashtashabi to go in and fight, the U.S. took some more of a backseat. And so the analogy that Iraqis had was, well, when we let Hashtashabi fight, there was less airstrikes and therefore the cities weren't as demolished. So, and people really viewed them as these sort of, um, I guess, national treasures that without them, they could never have defeated ISIS. So the level of sort of respect that they get from that, I think gets underplayed by the media too, in some ways, um, because they're, they're quite embraced, or at least they were embraced uh, by by Iraqis a lot. And then I think things have shifted a little bit with all the protests and things that have happened there over the past few years, and people have started to see the power grabs and, and things like that. But but they do have uh, they do have support on the ground. Where, where do you see Iraq uh, and Syria, for that matter, kind of going in the next few years? Well, I mean, you know, it's been ten years of war in Syria. Um, and I just think it's been an absolute failure of the international community to to negotiate any type of uh, agreement on the behalf of the Syrian people. It looks like Assad's won that pretty f- pretty squarely, and you know, to me, that's a real shame, given that just the atrocities that have been committed against the Syrian people, and it just it's unfathomable to me. I work a lot with Syrian burned children that we bring to get some help at Shriners here. Um, and it's just there's just thousands of them on the waiting list, and just the what they've had to experience is just is a slice of what that war looks like. But it's shocking to me that this man can still be in power, um, and I don't I don't see that changing necessarily anytime soon. Uh, Iraq too, it's it's going to be a a fairly I think unstable place for a while and it's going it, it's Iraq seems to be in a perpetual cycle of struggling to find what its identity is and I hope that Iraqis can find a reason to fight for their country um, I think that's why you see the Kurds in the north as being very effective is because Kur- Kurdistan is is the most important thing to them over religion over uh, you know all the other things they have this belief in a, in a love for Kurdistan and I just really hope that Iraqis who have proved themselves to be very, you know, combat experienced and 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 have all this ability to really defend their country, I just hope that they can find it from a, a morale point of view to to want to keep fighting for it. And I think the more that there is these outside influences, whether it's Iran or the US or whoever, the more that they they struggle to find that identity within themselves. Yeah. Do you see because uh, Syria is still under the the fist of of Assad that that, that they have kind of a, a more bleak outcome than Iraq. Yeah, I definitely think Iraq is is at a you know is at a place where at least it's having relatively fair elections, which is obviously important. Um, and they're allowing different representatives, and 
there is hope. There is definitely hope for Iraq. Syria at this point, once you've you've had that dictatorship in place, obviously before Bashar, it was his father Hafiz. So you're looking at you know your typical family uh, dictatorship there, and and he just seems to be able to to stick it out with the support of Iran again, with the support of Russia, and get away with all the all the mass the war crimes and crimes against humanity and the genocide is effectively done against the Syrian people. So, and nobody wants to move back into that environment either. So that's the question. Um, all the diaspora that's sort of all over Europe, all over the US and other places, people can't go home when they know that they're going to be persecuted or thrown in jail because of their support for the opposition. So I just, I don't see rep- Syria coming back to life anytime soon in that sense. Do you think that the reason that um, the regime in Iraq was toppled and the, and the one in Syria still hasn't been is because of the Iran and, and more specifically Russian backing is that we don't want to fuck with that and kick yeah, that horn? I really think that was a turning point in 2000 and uh, 2000 and we use that 15, I think, was when Russia got involved in Syria. Up until then, Assad looked like he was on the way out. I think that. Russia definitely came in to save that. I also think the opposition needs to take a lot of responsibility and blame too because it did start out as a, as a movement of, of people that wanted things like free and fair elections, didn't want to be targeted, didn't want, wanted to be able to live in a, in a society that, you know, was not necessarily westernized but modernized and, and had those sort of general pillars of democracy and I, I will always stand with that I always believe in people's ability to to live like that and I think it's a really a bigoted point of view when I hear people say all oh, these you know they have to have a dictatorship but I, I just I don't agree with that but I think um, Assad yeah he, he got the Russian backing Obama called a, a red line that never happened and that was probably the single biggest foreign policy failure was saying something and not doing it. I think is it Lyndon Johnson who has that great quote about if you if you're going to send a man to hell, you better be prepared to do it. Or if you're going to say you're going to send a man to hell, you better be prepared to do it. And I, some I'm using verbatim, but it's yeah. you get the point. Um, and when that didn't happen, you know that's when Russia and Iran and all these other groups kind of came in and saw saw that weakness and figured, well, you know, this is all talk. They're not going to do anything, and. It was sort of a bit of a lost cause from there. But but going back to what I said on the opposition, they need to take responsibility too because the peace ended up, did it did become hijacked by outside interests. It did become hijacked by extremist groups. And it's sort of this whole vacuum uh, enabled every player to kind of come in and 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 want to exert influence. And, and the opposition did go from being um, something you, you could support and get behind to being uh, filled with way too many uh, extremist elements for anyone to really feel comfortable with that. So in, in hearing about Russia um, and Iran, but again, more specifically Russia, I'm, I'm curious what your perception is of why they got involved. Do you, do you think it, it's merely to poke, poke us with a stick and just say, we're going to fuck with you? Or was there a, a legit strategic reason? Yeah, Russia has its biggest, uh, Russia basically ha- owns the entire Tartus port in Syria. So that's where it has free reign uh, for its entire Navy to be able to go in and out. Of. Well, do you know why? I mean, why, why, what is the tie between Russia and Syria? It's always had a historic tie. I think, you know, 
um, even Hafez, Assad's father, was very tightly aligned with with Russia dating back uh, several decades. So I think... Seems like an odd partnership. Yeah, Russia was able, always able to to assert its sort of um, military and get a lot of its assets inside Syria that it can use to then, you know, be uh, export oil to Europe and a lot of its kind of um, existence, I guess, depends on, on that relationship uh, with Syria. Having said that, I don't know that... I don't know how Putin necessarily feels about Assad himself but I think as long as Russia's interests are somewhat taken care of in Syria then um, they'll they'll be there but yeah. yeah I think yeah they have their own interests but of course one thing I've also found is anywhere the US is Russia is usually there on the other side yeah. over, yeah, over time proxy. yep yeah um, while you were there did you see <clears throat> Russian soldiers Russian influence that uh, that was obvious uh, in Syria, I mean, I didn't see any Russians personally, but I definitely hear a lot of s- stories about it. Um, I did see a lot when when we'd go into sort of old homes that had been abandoned by ISIS fighters. I saw a lot of Russian writing, and that could be Chechen, it could be uh, I can't tell you exactly where it came from, but there definitely uh, were a lot of Russian speaking ISIS fighters that yeah. would leave their uh, their graffiti around. Do you? view Russia as as big a threat as it's portrayed in our media to us. Not really. Um y- yes in a in a sense that it likes to mess around, but I mean its GDP is is pretty crap. And you know it, it I don't think it has um yeah, a pull in that sense and and I've spent a bit of time in Russia and I I I've loved it there and it's funny because I think there's this sort of stereotype that we get with Russia as sort of it being a you know, people being uh, very quiet and serious and um, stoic. And yeah, that. and then when I went there, I just I, I couldn't have met the more lovely, warm, friendly people that I. Really? Yeah, they were just, you know, someone who I didn't even know. You know, her friend. She she drove like four hours to pick me up from an airport. Oh. You know, and I just and she was so bright and vivacious and and they uh, you know introduced me to all her friends and one of them said we're at a dinner party in Moscow and one of them said to me. You know, he was using a translator. He said, is it true that in America all the bad guys in the films are Russian? And (laughs) I had to stop. I had never, you know, because I'd never been asked that question. I stopped and I thought, yeah, yeah, it is true. true. (laughs) He's like, why? And I said, oh. I think it's a carryover from the Cold War. Like it's just easy to... Yeah, you know, start like starting with well, so the the Cold War carries over into the eighties, which is kind of the the peak of like action movies, right? Yeah. Rambo and yeah, and uh, or like say uh, even though I was in, in Vietnam, I mean the the was it Rambo three? I think he, he fights Russians, but uh, but there's always a Russian influence, like even in the first one, uh, but uh, or like Rocky four, where he goes to Russia and fights yeah. the big Russian guy, you know, whatever. So I think. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of a carryover from that, maybe. But the, that's funny. I, I hadn't thought of it really that way either. But yeah. um, the the time that you spent in Russia was that um, for work or was it pleasure? Or yes, that was a little bit of both. I um, I go in the middle of winter as you do, so <laughs> that was uh, that was just after the twenty sixteen election. So it was kind of funny timing. Um, I yeah, I went to to Moscow with a friend for a little bit and just kind of wanted to see it and experience it and. And I had a few good friends and then uh, took a train down to St. Petersburg and um, 
you know, loved it because Russians are such culture vultures. So for me, coming from an arts background, it was like you'd go to the ballet, to the Bolshoi, to the Marinsky, sort of the way you'd go to a, I don't know, to a bar to watch a football game here. It's like everybody went and they would all take their, you know, straight out of work and it was affordable and accessible to people or to the to the opera or whatever it was and everyone would take their their uh, nice shoes in a little bag and so you'd have the coat check and coat and shoe check as well because everyone would change their shoes and so it was just cool because I thought how nice it was to kind of be in a place and everybody was really supporting it but I ended up going to do work in Crimea so mm. that was um that was really interesting actually because I just you hear about the sort of the annexation of Korea of Crimea uh, that had happened in 2014 and it's obviously still a big foreign policy issue um, and a big factor between Russia and the Ukraine. But I, yeah, I just, I found it to be a fascinating little uh, place and a story that I wanted to understand a little bit better and understand what, again, what the people on the ground thought of what was happening. And also I just wanted to understand how you annex a place, yeah. how you just take it over and suddenly it's yours. And that well, to me was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it's reminiscent of like middle age history where yeah. groups just, oh, I'm going to take that now. You know, like that's not supposed to happen now, right? But it, but it still does. And that's another thing I think a lot of people don't realize, whether it's here, people are like, well, that shit could never happen here. Like, don't say never because shit can happen everywhere and it is happening. Like things that that you think would, would be impossible to, to happen, period, are taking place as as we're sitting here talking. Mm. Uh, and they described it as little green men. So I said, Does, did this happen all at once? Like, what happened? And people there said, over weeks, these people that were little green men, they called them because they were just dressed all in green and they had no insignia or anything, would just come and stand in the street. Really? they just come and stand in a building. And suddenly, you're walking down the street and there's just little green men everywhere and they don't speak and you don't know what they're doing and you don't know who they are. Are they armed? I think some of them were, and then some of them weren't. So yeah. that's what they, for Strange. them. They were just like, "This is weird." Weird. And then all of a sudden, it started to make sense. Yeah. So what? So having spent time there and trying to gather uh, perspective on on not just what's going on on the ground, but kind of all sides. What is your your take on uh, on the entire thing? On the takeover of Crimea. Mm-hmm. Well, I will say. From the perspective, and obviously, I you know, I stand with the notion that you can't just take, you can't take land that doesn't belong to you, and so I, I very much stand with Ukraine in, in wanting to fight to have that. But from the perspective of people on the ground, which again, what I tried to do, and this was, you know, this was a, eighteen months after the takeover, so what I found was that people, had had said to me, the ones that were extremely uh, pro-Ukraine in the beginning, said that I guess how it was handled from Kiev was that they were sort of made to, they were ostracized where it suddenly became very difficult for them to get a passport or to go and they'd have to, you know, they felt very marginalized just because they lived in Crimea. And so their allegiance shifted to Russia as it went on because they saw their government as being hostile to them and then they saw the Russian government as kind of embracing them and welcoming them and welcome to Russia kind of thing. And so a lot that didn't support the uh, annexation in the beginning shifted based on that sort of sense of hostility that they felt that they were receiving just because of where they lived. That's interesting. I mean, it's almost like a psyops kind of mm-hmm. thing, you know, where uh, instead of using force and, and brutality of, of, you know, kind of the good cop, 
mm. uh, mentality of, of getting them to shift that way, which is pretty smart. And then I found this amazing sort of idea of a pro-sanctions group. And I thought, what is this? And I had these women telling me, we're pro-sanctions. And I thought, how can you be pro-sanctions? What is that? So obviously the U.S. has a lot of sanctions and sanctioned Russia over what happened with Crimea. But what why they're pro-sanction is because it forces them to make everything internally. So they said, well, we couldn't get our French cheese anymore. So we started making <laughs> our own cheese and our own cheese is better. And now we're making money or we couldn't get, you know, X, Y, Z. So now we, it forces us as communities to come together and, and make our own. And so you sort of had this fascinating sort of yeah, pro-sanctions yeah. movement. All over cheese. It's, it's funny, the, uh, the things that become important, mm-hmm. you know, in situations like that or that stick out that way. Yeah. Do, do you see that as a situation where the United States should get involved? <sighs> I mean, it's funny. It's arbitrary to me what we choose to say, what we choose to get involved in and what we then turn our back and say that's a bilateral issue between the countries. Um, there's obviously a lot of disputed land. You, know, you can go, say, Kashmir between Pakistan and India, which has been a really deadly border forever because they fight over that land. And the U.S. says that's a bilateral issue. We're not going to get involved. But the U.S. has been a lot more heavily involved in, say, the Crimea issue. Again, I, I think it helps to, you know, you can't just go around taking land and it does help to to speak and to, to say, you know, to vocally condemn something. But I don't see the, I, I don't see what good the U.S. would try to do, you know, physically um, in that that has to be arranged, that, you know, that has to be worked out between them and, and whoever's arbitrating that. And I don't think the U.S. really has any place in, in uh, you know, sending anybody over there in that sense. Yeah. Unless it's an immediate kind of, militarized threat so that that leads me to you know kind of the bigger picture question president mckay (laughs) right not american born citizen it's all hypothetical (laughs) Uh, to me you you bring a very unique perspective you're not biased towards america the the way an american would be right so i I think that coupled with the fact that you've spent more time in, in these places than than almost any u.s soldier has um, you know, or, or at least as much as most of them, right? But with a very different agenda and viewpoint or, or even lens that you see everything through because, again, it's it's very neutral, whereas, you know, take my time in Iraq was not neutral. Like I'm, I'm looking through right. an American soldier's glasses, which is very different. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of keeping me and the guys next to me safe and we're there to do one fucking job and that's to break stuff and kill people and come home and that's it. Mm. So it's, it's there's a... Um, a, sim- a simplistic um, nicety that way in, in, in being in such a focused role where, where I don't envy the position that you're in in that way is, is that you're, you're trying to not be biased and gathering everything from, from a multi-angled perspective. And so I'm curious then, uh, because I do think it's really, really valuable uh, if you were the president of the United States, both going all the way back to I'd even say September 12th mm-hmm. till present day. What would you have done different and what would you do moving forward? I think what the U.S. is really great at in, and you know, I'll take uh, Afghanistan in that beginning is is going in and just, you know, we were able to go in and wipe the Taliban out in, you know, a few weeks basically. 
and then the problems rose from well, what happens next and that's sort of the the nation building debate um it's difficult because i don't think there is any right solutions you can go in to a country and get out really quickly and it's still a disaster you can go in and stay in it's still a disaster and then you cannot go in at all and it's still a disaster so there isn't really uh one one way in but i think um afghanistan I could go into this for forever, the reasons I think Afghanistan's failed. I think it's great, you know, that the U.S. was able to go in and, and really show its power. But I don't know how much point it is to have um, troops, you know, doing all these kind of things when the jobs that can be done by NGOs or USAID or, you know, a lot of the programs that, that people end up kind of getting into just from – the perspective of you know how is it going to be perceived by the locals and is that really the best use of our of our of our troops and I, I vacillated with it a lot but I think you know for the most part I don't I don't see a much point in having a big footprint in a lot of these places having said that I also see the benefits of small footprint like I really believe say in Syria when you know the U.S. had a couple of thousand troops I thought it was an example of a good model in how the U.S. could still have sort of some presence and it enables you know intelligence assets and other things to get a strong idea of what's happening on the ground without having to do the heavy lifting the heavy lifting was done by the Syrian fighters or and I thought that was a good example of how the U.S. can can be engaged have influence and and what that brought for people that were living in some of the places was this idea that, okay, well, we don't see American troops and we don't, um, you know, they're not really involved, but we know they're here and that if Russia was ever to try to come in or the Assad regime was going to come back in and retake or whatever it was, that wouldn't fly. So it was a deterrent in some ways without actually having to to do yeah, a lot of the, the heavy fighting. But, you know, for the most part, I I think the last 20 years has sort of proven to us that, that these long wars and and these sort of massive engagements are just are really not worth it from any any point of view. Yeah, to me, I, I agree wholeheartedly with both uh, Iraq, I would say Libya, Egypt, uh, Syria. Um, my my perspective is is that very simply is that it's a shitty scenario. There's mm. no doubt about it. Um, but I don't see where us getting involved fixes it, you know, and, yeah. and I don't think it's worth, I mean, I've got a number of friends. I'm sure, you know, you've made a lot of friends over the years too, that are now gone, um, you know, because of these wars. And, and when I look at kind of the mean collective uh, total of, of progress that, that we think that we've made and I, and I look at it and try to contrast it or, or leverage it, it, it doesn't shake out, you know, like I, I don't think it's worth it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's even close to worth it. Yeah. The one, uh, I think, wild card is Afghanistan for me uh, in, in that, you know, post 9-11, yes, I agree, like something had to be done. Like you can't just be like, well, that sucks. Right. You know, you've got to punch them back in the mouth. It, it's what do you do after that? And my take, again, I'm curious to get, get your perspective as an Australian that, that you know, they played a, a significant role in World War II also is to me world war ii is kind of a, a consummate textbook example of how to do it right in, in that you don't get involved until basically you're forced to yeah. you know there's an existential threat to the to your way of life if you do, if you do nothing and then you you put the entire weight of, of the entire goddamn country behind it not just the u.s military i mean you've got 
you know, moms and kids collecting, you know, tin cans to recycle to, to build planes and, you know, all, all this, the entire country is behind this and, and you send everybody over there until the job is finished. There's not three months in, three months out. Like, yeah, it's better for the mental health and, and stability of soldiers, but in the grand scheme of things, it's kind of like, you know, having a, a, a rotating manager at McDonald's, like, you know, the, the product is going to suck worse because mm-hmm. of that. Like, yeah, it's, it's better to have breaks, but there, there's something to be said for going over there and saying, you guys aren't coming home until you fucking crush it. Right. You know, like that, that's going to make people want to crush it even more. Not that they, they don't to begin with, but there's a sense of urgency there. The, the Viking burning of the boats type of mentality, I think. Um, I think when that is coupled with saying, okay, uh, you know, we, we are changing your culture because of this. And, and, and similarly, like we're still in Germany, we are still in Japan, you know, and, and we did what we had to do to ensure that that never cropped back up, you know, and, and, you know, to me, like it's still not ideal. It's still not perfect. There's still going to be a shitload of people that that shouldn't have been killed that are going to die. Um, but I think that again, looking at at all of the lesser of of all evils, is that I can't think of a, of a better way to kind of handle your business as a, as a nation as it relates to foreign policy than than that as an example. Um, now, where I think it would be tough with Afghanistan and trying that is that. A, we didn't do that. You know, we j- just like kind of the first Iraq war, I think we, um, you know, kicked over the hornet's nest, you know, killed all the hornets that we could see and then and then backed out and, and all the, the reserves came out of nowhere. And then it was a cat and mouse game, you know, for years. Whereas in World War II, you know, we stayed there and continued to root it out until they were completely gone and, and we changed their society forever. Um, what What is your thoughts on that? I always, so we look at the Taliban. These are mountain militiamen fighting with an old AK-47. Why are they so strong still? Resilience. I think that we failed to get to the root of the problem in Afghanistan, which was the sheer levels of corruption that happen on a government level. And when you have to go to work every day and you have to pay off a police officer half your salary just to get to your, you know, your job sweeping the street and your government doesn't have your back and there's a constant level of corruption and you're seeing everyone around you, you know, take money, you have to pay this person, you have to get this, you get pissed. And even if you're not driven by any form of religion, sort of extremism, you're going to join an insurgency you go, or you're going to support an insurgency that is going to fight against a government because you've lost faith that your government has your back. And I really think that over the years, and I've brought this up so many times, often the U.S. looks at this systemic corruption, whether it's Afghanistan. And if you've ever read the cigar reports that come out from the inspector general there, they will just infuriate you. The level of waste, things, um, you know, lost due to corruption. Somebody gets a billion-dollar contract for a translating who doesn't know how to speak past you or, you know, whatever. Like, it's just, it's unfathomable, yeah. So, um when that happens time after time, there's a reason the Taliban has the support in communities and and in and even not just in the fighting rank, but just in the communal rank. And that is because people look at them as as a fighter against a system that they can never change or break into. And I think the U.S. has made the mistake over the years of looking at the corruption as being just too big to deal with. 
And I think these groups are so often symptoms of that rather than being causes of that. And I just think if, if more efforts were put into not tolerating some of that bullshit, not tolerating you selling off this to that, the aid money we give you, if there was accountability to where that where that money went, you know, who gobbled up that money? Why didn't go to the people? Well, you're not getting any more until it does. Um, and sort of getting a lot more, clamping down on that a lot more and, and enforcing a shift. I mean, we didn't even know who the last president was in the Afghanistan election. It was, again, second time in a row. It was, well, we didn't know who won. They both won, both claiming victories. I mean, what is this? It's a circus. And until you want to get to the bottom of the circus, you know, these groups are going to exist. So I, I guess again, from like let's say you're you're running the show. How how do you? Is it just a, a corruption accountability, or do you have to go further than that? Like let's say you you step into to being in charge of Afghanistan, and, and now you're uh, you're tasked yeah. with figuring it out. What what would you do? I mean, it's all piece by piece. You have to take it step. You have to take it step by step. And I think it's great. A lot of the work again that Cigar has done in just in this in highlighting the level of corruption, um, and that is. Um, in bringing it to light at least, but then what, where's the accountability when it is brought to light? So I think the U.S., you know, obviously we as taxpayers have, have spent a lot in Afghanistan and so we need something to to prove that there is there is genuine change, I think, that is happening within that system. Um, I mean, things like the election, that should just never have happened. You know, we we don't want to be the overlord. We don't want to be the, the micromanager, but... Until you can show that things are being done fairly, you know, maybe the U.S. has to to take more of a um, a stronger role in that in that sort of diplomatic and maybe less of a military sense and a more of a sort of a diplomatic sense in in trying to get it aligned because the more you the more that exists, the more that all the other problems will exist. At, at this point, given you know it's been t- over twenty years, yeah. almost you know, right at twenty years, I guess. Um, would you stay there? Do you think we should still be fucking with them, or would you just say, you know what? No, just just leave, just be done with it. I I want to say just leave and be done with it. the The biggest losers in that will be the women because they're the you know. There's obviously been a lot of progress for them in being able to leave their house, get a job, um, you know, have a sense of identity and and outside outside of that, and they they've really we'll lose that immediately when the U.S. leaves. But um, at least from a military point of view, I, I don't, again, unless it's going to be just this, a very small contingency, a similar model to Syria where you have 1,000 to 2,000 troops that are just kind of there as a deterrent, um, you know, to facilitate intelligence gathering or whatever it may be, I support that because I think that's a good deterrent at some point. But these large-scale I don't know what else is left to be done. I don't know what you can do from a military point of view anymore. Do you feel the same way about Iraq? Yeah, I do. You, do you feel that? Uh, and again, I, you know, hindsight's so twenty twenty. But do you think Iraq entirely was a mistake? Again, I mean, Saddam Hussein was you know he did a lot of really fucking awful things to people. And again, I I support everybody's desire to live under a somewhat of a democracy or at least a, a non-dictatorship and and that obviously didn't exist in Iraq. Um, Do you think he's any worse than Assad or Gaddafi? 
I mean, they're all, you know, they're all cut from the same cloth. Yeah. So no, he was no worse. And so I think the overall premise for, for us going into, uh, to Iraq is obviously we can look back and say that was flawed and, you know, what business did we have being there? And I think I definitely agree with it in that sense, but I, I do think it's still important to acknowledge at least that, you know, I, I think there's the part of me that still says, you know, it's, he was a. He did a lot of terrible things, and in and met his uh and met his um downfall in that way. But I think everything that came after that just proved to be a disaster. There was just a lack of understanding of, I guess, the culture and and what the Iraqi people wanted. And I, I don't know how many of the Iraqi people at that point even, as much as as. Except for the Kurds who hated Saddam because of what he did uh, in chemically bombing them in the 80s. But a lot of Iraq too, just that was all they knew. So I just, I don't know how much input was given to what the Iraqi people wanted before that happened. But I definitely think for the most part, that was a, was a pretty big mistake to to wade. I, I remember just a few minutes ago, you mentioned the bigoted viewpoint that some take of, Many of these countries need a dictator. Mm. Uh, I'll be the first to admit there there is absolutely an element of me seeing, uh, you know, the things that happen there of thinking, not that I think that that's great, but sure. I, I wonder, I find myself wondering like, well, well what else yeah. would work then? Uh, right. And I'm curious, uh, you know, what, how, how do you manage that region then because the, you know to me it's it's so primal in in the sense that mm. you know it, it's so so many things take place there out of force right you know and, and compulsion and just brute strength of that i'm bigger i'm stronger i have more people whatever that i'm i'm going to take what i want you know whether it's your wife whether it's your kids whether it's your stuff whether it's this village you know your crops whatever it's very you know mid mid evil times fucking viking mentality in, in a lot of ways still there and so h- how do you kill corruption maintain an even enough keel between the people to where you you don't allow uh groups of people rising up and forming a powerful enough band to to go do something and then you as a government have, has to kind of snuff them out or crush them or, or whatever you know when, when there's enough of that that's just ingrained in their society so what what would be your your solution to that if not a, a brutal dictatorship right so i think um yeah it's difficult but you know and these things definitely take time and they come but you know if there can be a i guess a free first of all a free election that the majority of people freely vote for uh in power with you know these different religious groups and 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 they're all, you know, have their voice. Everybody wants their voice and are fairly represented in whatever that government can look like. And if people can view their government as somebody who they can be proud of and, and obviously use, you're always going to have opposition. We have a ton of opposition here. But someone that has their best interests, I think that is the number one thing. And I'm, it's basic things. And again, these things take time. But I, I look at issues like land rights and to us, you know, we're used to, you know, having that right. If you buy property, you rent property, whatever it is that you have, you know, that is yours to own. And I think that is something in the Middle East that people just have never had security in. And that was the whole reason the Arab Spring started in Tunisia. Eventually a 
a guy selling fruit just just got sick of you know the government coming in and taking his fruit stand away from him that he owned for no recourse and he set himself on fire and so i i see that as a sort of analogy for that whole region and what can be done to give people that sense of i don't I don't know if it's right, but almost a capitalistic sense that we have in the U.S. where you can come from nothing and make something for yourself. You can own property. You can start a business. You can, you know, do a lot of these things and know that um, the government can't just come in and take it from you with no recourse for no good reason. And, and, And so I think it's basic things like that, basic principles that need to be, there needs to be a bigger push from some of these governments. If the right leader was in power to do that. Um, again, it's getting that right person. But, yeah, I mean, if you're just going to pass it down through a family line every time, where's, you know, where's the sort of the fairness in that? Yeah, there isn't any. Um, you know, to me where, where the, the, the tricky part is, is that take even here in the United States, right, is that there's plenty of evil that exists here. Mm-hmm. It's kept in check by, though, by um, enough of, morally driven, fair-minded people that, that believe in a sense of justice and, and equity, equality, uh, fairness, judicial uh, justice, et cetera, that, that are keeping those people in check. You know, and, and to me, that, that's a, a cultural thing that you can't um, not force, but, but even inspire from a government if, if they're not. And so to me, it, it's, Again, like at the risk of sounding like a total asshole pessimist, I, I just don't see a society where corruption and, and family um, dynasties are, are the norm uh, of them policing themselves and deciding, you know, what, we're going to give up this really fucking good deal that we have for for the fairness of our entire populace. Right. Is that um, I mean, that, that's hard enough to, mm. to do it here. Uh, I mean, fuck, for that matter, our, our own election, this past one, is, is in pretty heavy question by a lot of people. Enough people for it to potentially jeopardize future elections, right. I would say. You know, and so to me, it, it's, it's akin also, I think, to when, you know, something shady happens in our government and our government investigates itself and finds that nothing, nobody was at fault. It's like, yeah, fuck you guys. Right. Uh, you know, and so to me, that that's kind of the the everlasting struggle that that every one of these countries is always going to have is that you know you you've got to basically start completely over because these people that are in that position of power take even our own Congress and Senate. Like there, there's a reason every one of those assholes comes in being worth one hundred and forty thousand dollars, and four years later they're worth six point seven million. Right. Um, and that's not an accident, you know, and, and so once they're in those positions, uh, and again, this is not not pointed at one party, they're both equally fucking guilty, is that, uh, you know, they, they don't want term limits because it sucks for them. And when once they're in that position, they're not giving it up. You know, mm. uh, I mean, you see that with with the left trying to, to bring in more states and more senators and uh, change filibuster rules and, and all these things to make it even harder for them to be booted out of out of the position of power that they're in. And, and so if that can happen here, where where by contrast, we are far, far more fair and uh, and balanced than uh, than these other countries are in that regard. I just I don't see how you, you do that. I mean, take take the election, you know, which I mm. agree, like it starts with that is that the people have to believe that it was a fair and free election. And that the the guy or, or whoever the person is that that got voted for is that it's legit. Like if that's not there, nothing else works, right? But 
here, here's the the hard part with that is that well how do you how do you make that happen well you can only make that happen if the entire country is on board if everybody counting the ballots is right. on board if everybody uh, you know, who, who funneling up the chain is is legit people who are are honest. I mean, you, you saw enough examples here in, in this country of ballots being lost and and people moving shit around in the middle of the night and thumb drives showing up at four in the morning and now all of a sudden there's four hundred thousand more votes for somebody. Like, if that's enough to shake our confidence, like how the fuck do you do you start over in a country that's war torn, blown to shit? with massive corruption from the top that makes ours look like the fucking Boy Scouts and, and start over and, and make it to where it's going to be good. I don't know how you do that. I mean, again, it just, it takes time. You've, and it's about, you know, it's about having, you've got to be proud of your country to start with, but in a point where it's not an indoctrinated sort of nationalistic like North Korea. Yeah. But you've got to want, you've got to believe in your country and you've got to want to fight for it. And you know, in a situation like Syria, it would probably take um, a multi sort of group of, of international players to kind of, I don't want to use the word supervise, but to have a hand, at least in the beginning, of trying to find that right person that can be trusted and ob- observing an election. And it's just that one at a time kind of stepping up. Let's get the Syrian people back to their country if you know if they want to, to be there and 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 most of them do they don't want to be living in you know a lot of a lot of places they want to be in syria and i think it's just starting it's starting from the ground up it's it's giving people that confidence it's giving the people um you know an ability to and i think this is where you know refugees are extraordinary they have an ability to start over that a lot of us probably don't have that sort of resilience where they're so used to u- losing everything and rebuilding it again um you know without all the sort of the challenges and complaints that i think i would i would go through if that was me um so i th- yeah it's again it's a piece by piece and there's no there's no magic bullet but i think you have to keep believing that change can happen. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree. I think yeah. for, for me, you know, again, I, I may be a little biased given my background of. But we're so fortunate to have the American Constitution here. I yeah. mean. Well, so long as it's continued to yeah, be followed, which yeah. I mean, even that's up for debate at this point. But, but that's such a work of art that it's just, it's extraordinary. The yeah. vision of the founding fathers and when yeah. they were building this country and how they saw these things. They saw what could happen back then and they sort of cemented that and I, I I would hate to think what the US would be like if we sort of didn't ha- at least have that sort of uh, resolute document yeah. that has put it together. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a, a firm proponent of that driving every que- answer mm-hmm. to every question you have as to whether or not we should do something. You know, it, it's such a a priceless, brilliant document that I, I agree, like I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that at that time that they had the ability to to craft that the mm-hmm. way that they did it's it's truly remarkable totally um I, I guess you know in terms of relating it back to you know syria iraq afghanistan what have you is that to me like as as a double a personality guy i think you know i always understand that at the end of the day when when all else fails negotiation diplomat uh, resolutions and, and or otherwise is that you know who, who can kick the shit out of the other guys is ultimately what it may come down to not not will come down to but can mm-hmm. come down to if if everything else fails and to me that that's the the, the part where I, I just don't see in any of these countries going back to the do they need a dictatorship maybe not necessarily but to me in in each one of these countries current form I would say the answer is yes for them to at least 
um, survive in in some sort of, of mm-hmm. normalcy. Not that it's an acceptable normalcy, but at least one where you know their country isn't being bombarded nonstop. Shy of that, uh, you would have to completely overthrow and and replace the entire government, military, et cetera, with a non-corrupt replacement, you know, because otherwise, again, you're going to, I think you're just going to face the same thing here is that if you, if you try to, if we try to implement elections and polling places are getting blown up and and people counting ballots are getting kidnapped and, uh, you know, voting official supervisors are getting their heads cut off because, you know, whatever, like that's never going to, going to pan out. And and these people are, are clearly not just capable, but willing to go to those measures to protect the positions of power that they're in the same way that, that people are here. Uh, just, just, uh, extravagantly more so there. But, um, anyway, uh, I want to think if we can start somewhere and, and do it with the goal of not having to intervene militarily. Um, I guess I just don't know how you do that. Yeah. You know, because again, it, it, if, if they kick it to that notch, right. If we try to be, if, if we try to take the diplomatic approach and, and use negotiations and, and diplomacy to to enact this, and they say, "Yeah, no, that sounds good," and then they just do what know, they want to what do. they want to do anyway, and, and you know, um, yeah, just just enact violence that the same way that they have have proven to do for decades. You know, th- then what? It's like to me, like it, it's I don't know if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson at all, but. I was just listening to one of his lectures. Yeah. yeah I mean, to right. me, like there, there's a, there's a, so many brilliant aspects mm. to a lot of the things that he says because they're, they're very relevant in, in a lot of these things. And in, in that, you know, the, the ability to negotiate, um, you know, really hinges on the fact that, that both parties know that if that fails, you're going to fight, whether it's two guys disagreeing mm. about something or on the micro or, you know, at the macro to, two countries or even, you know, unionized versions of, of groups of countries that are trying to negotiate something for whatever the, uh, whatever you're talking about is that, is that both sides understand that if we, if we can't come to terms here, we're going to fucking fight, mm. uh, you know, and, and that's what, what gives people the ability to actually negotiate because if that threat of that is not behind that, then who right. gives a shit if you come to, to an agreement or not, it doesn't matter. Right. It, to me, it's the same problem that you see in, in social media is that people, have no problem running their mouth in a fashion in which they absolutely would not do it in person because there's they know that there is no fear of of getting punished for it is that they can say whatever they want with absolutely no consequence so there's right. no there's no reason to be amicable right because there, there's no consequence for not being so so um, anyway you know we could uh, talk about it for days I'm sure but uh, I wanted to pivot a little bit uh, one of the things that popped up I was curious about is what's the nastiest thing you ever ate while you were overseas. God, um, I've been sick so many times. Yeah. Did you get sick a lot, like food poisoning? Uh, usually once every trip. <laughs> yeah, once every yeah, trip. Yeah. Well, it was a couple of trips I was really, I was almost having to be hospitalized. Um, but I remember I, what it was that you ate. That- you know, what? I think in Iraq one time I smoked way too much hookah, like just breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack. And I think, I, I, I reckon I had, uh, to, like nicotine poisoning yeah. <laughs> and it was the middle of summer um dehydrated yes i was super dehydrated um in terms of nasty i mean i pretty much yeah i try not to complain too much and just kind of take whatever is given to me uh, when i'm there i can't think of, i can't think of anything too nasty what about you well probably a bamboo bat in okay. uh, in the philippines is the thing that 
that comes to mind as being the, the most disgusting thing I've ever tried. They, you know, to watch these Filipino seals pull uh, these the tiny little bamboo bats out of chambers of bamboo and the, the, I mean, shit, just the way that they extracted them was fascinating. What did it but, taste like? Uh, like a salty, um, it, it was a little burnt too because they took really fine shoots of bamboo and, and skewered them and then kind of, you know, uh, rotisseried them over a fire. And so it was, it was kind of a charred, salty loogie with with crunchy collagen bones and because you ate the whole the whole thing right you know? so it was just it was just gross i mean it, it wasn't like like eating something rotten gross it was it was just the te- the texture was again kind of like a crunchy crunchy snotty loogie that was burnt you know yeah. it was, it, but i remember actually i remember now one time i went to this little place in syria on the side of the road and my my driver ordered me fish oh we have fish and fish and I said, where's the fish from? Well, it's from the Euphrates. Mm, okay. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what. And I, I think I posted, you know, sent a picture to my friend, to the former team guy, and he's like, do you know how many dead bodies are in that? Yeah. <laughs> I was sick for two days. Oh, wow. Yeah. God, no fish from the Euphrates. I didn't think it had much taste, to yeah. be honest. I probably put a lot of salt on it yeah. and smoked a lot of hookah with it. <laughs> I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. So sm- smoking the hookah pipe was a pretty pretty common thing for you over there? Yeah, it was a bit of a bad habit I brought back with me. You have one here? Um, well, I used to have one both in my L.A. apartment in New York, <laughs> and I would smoke it for breakfast. I found this coffee-flavored agila, and I'd smoke it for breakfast, and I was just smoking it all the time. I thought, okay, this has to go. So eventually I, I gave it away. It was We parted with it, and it was difficult. But I still go when I can and yeah. have a shisha with a friend. It's kind of fun. That's awesome. Uh, do you have a question? Uh, what's your favorite sound? Sound? In what way? Like music sound? Just like any sound. I love, I'm still a big lover of classical music. So whenever I kind of need to tune out or, you know, take a break from the world in some way or need to refocus my brain, I yeah, I still go back to some of those kind of classics. Do you have a favorite composer? Or you, Buck. Yeah. I'm a Buck girl. Yeah. Um, I'd have to go Canon and B is, is probably my favorite song of, of all time in, in that regard. I'm not a huge classical fan, but uh, but that, that song without question always. Yeah. You know, uh, Paca Bell always uh, strikes true for, for my taste. Anything else? I don't eat cereal, actually. Hookah flavored. Hookah flavored. Or cereal flavored. I, I don't eat cereal. Um, but yeah, I remember when I was at boarding school, we'd all fight over the Cocoa Pops. I think I lived on cereal and that's why I can't eat it. I think for about six months of my life, every meal was some sort of form of not very nutritious, sugary cereal. And yeah. Gave it up after that. Yeah. Curiosity. So it's always funny what people are curious about. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of all of the places that you've been, is there one group uh, in a specific group, not even like ISIS, you know, mm-hmm. w- within the ranks of, of everywhere that you've been that you find the, the most threatening slash scary? I think Africa. Which yeah. I think um, 
it was more just sort of some of the ragtag militias that were coming out of uh, Somalia that in the Congo that were just terrifying because it, it it was so ruthless and like far more ruthless than the yeah guys. yeah How far so? more ruthless it's the level of killing. I remember talking to some women in a village that you know had to run because one of them had had you know triplets and they were so terrified that if anyone had found out that they had triplets and then two of them would have been taken away for a sort of a sacrifice and just there were just these terrible things the women that I speak to and this is when I I really sort of numbed out and had to take a break was you know just women that had had all these babies from rape and and just the levels of of things were so unimaginable still that I and when I read today uh, just so unimaginable that they happen um you know, fa- family members, you know, being forced to rape each other, just, just literally, just the worst of of what I've I can hear. It shakes me, and I I still feel that that some of the worst stories I've ever heard have come out of there, and also cartel stories, work I've done in Mexico as well. Um, a lot of the sort of the br- levels of brutality, you know, make ISIS kind of seem like a bit of a, 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 a cakewalk, yeah. Is there, I guess, of everything that's going on uh, in the world, kind of going back to the the big picture, what do you think we should be doing that we're not or different or or whatever? Like, because to me, you know, this is a pretty common hotbed political football. It's like the world police thing. It's like, Mm. God, there's so many atrocities that go on, whether it's sub-Saharan Africa, the the Horn, the Middle East, fucking China, Mexico, you name it, like, Clearly, we can't get right. involved in everything. And so to me, I, I again go back to World War II is that, hey, all that stuff sucks mm-hmm. and I'd love to help you. But, you know, it's kind of like being on a sinking ship or an almost sinking ship and having so many people come on to where you end up sinking it and fuck everybody over. But, you know, so in, in your opinion, like, what do you do about everything that's going on? Anything? I think, you know, and this has always been put in a negative light and I don't I don't think it should be put in a negative light. And, and people say, well, the U.S. only gets involved in things where it has an interest. And I think, well, the U.S. should only get involved in a place where it has an interest. And that should be um, something that is a direct threat to the United States of America and, and the homeland here. Um, and that is the only time, you know, that I, I think, you know, given the, the scale of conflicts that exist, that is the only time that America should think about taking a bigger action. Other than that, um, you know, we can support aid groups, you know, NGOs do a lot of great work on a humanitarian level, um, obviously relying on private donations, but governments can donate if they want, and a lot of states do. Um, But in terms of large-scale involvements in any place or interference, that should come only when it's identified as a direct threat, and I think that, yeah, I don't think that's a negative thing. Having said that, I look at China as being a really important player in the foreign policy piece going forward, given, I guess, the growth in their economy and obviously, you know, what's happened with the pandemic and, you know, making sure this doesn't happen again, that this we, we can't afford to deal with this shit again. So um, I think China is going to be an important piece in that. And obviously Mexico is our neighbor and the number of, of drug-related deaths that happen, you know, is, is huge and... Trump was right in declaring that to be a, a national emergency, and it is, and and we have to address that with neighbor with our neighbors, um, given that so much is coming from Mexico and and Latin America. 
with the work that you've done down there, um, do you see the the border as being a pretty clear cut issue of there needs to be one and it needs to be maintained, or or what? What's your take on? I I think it's interesting because every country I you know I visit, um, you know whether it, you know the borders are porous or they're not, but a lot of countries like you go between Turkey and Syria and you will freaking get shot if you cross that border. Um, so so the idea of of a border is 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 what makes a country i guess and i think there needs to be um you know i don't know whether that needs to necessarily be a physical wall or anything else but there needs to be some form of you know checks and balances in in how that is controlled and i don't think it's wrong for any country to want to know who's coming in and who's coming out obviously you're never going to have a hundred percent you know lockdown on that um, and that is always going to be ways in and ways out. But I, I do believe that I don't think it should be. Yeah. It's been misconstrued as being this sort of bad thing to want to know who's here and who's not and how they're here and why they're here. And I think that's America's right to know that. I agree. I, I'm baffled, frankly, at, at the, the disconnect between so many people. And I get that it's largely because, well, the guy that I don't like politically thinks the other thing. So I just by default think the opposite, which I think right. is, is absurd. But I am curious, you know, from from growing up elsewhere and being all over these places, similarly to, you know, uh, myself also, like uh, I've been to every place I've been to, like you can't just go from one place to the next. Right. Um, you know, and, and I think that that makes sense. Um, why do you suppose there are so many fucking people here that don't get that? I wish I had a great answer for you. I think there's a lot of uh, different um you know, agendas at play in that. I think it's great on one level that, you know, people that, you know, want to show their compassion in that sense. But let's be realistic in um, it's okay to, you know, I would say this diplomatically. It's okay. You don't to, have to be diplomatic. Just mic drop and say whatever I the know. fuck you want. So I just think, you know, and what I really noticed, especially at the last election, is, is so many people that I talked to, who obviously, you know, and, and no one wants to see any images, regardless of whatever administration it is, of, you know, a child in a cage. I think it's atrocious. But at what point did we start caring more about, I guess, the outside than, than what a lot of our own, you know, what a lot of American children on the streets every day are kind of encountering? And I, I think that that should be, you know, that should be America's focus is we need yeah. to... We need to, and that's not to say not to be compassionate human beings. And and I know that the situations um, in some of those countries are, are really difficult. But I also I also believe, you know, and I'm someone who who see who meets a lot, has a lot of refugee friends and supports, you know, what refugees have gone through. But there's a big difference between a refugee and a, and a migrant. Mm-hmm. And a refugee is somebody who's just has no choice and they're fleeing because they're, you know, they're absolute, their life depends on it. And they're, for whatever reason, fleeing is sort of a, a level of persecution that I will never hopefully ever have to comprehend. Economic migrants are in a really tough situation and life might suck and they might not be able to get a job and, and but that doesn't give you the legal right to migrate to another country and the reason that we have the refugee laws and the Geneva Conventions is to prioritize refugees that need that help whereas economic migrants there's no legal um, framework for that so I think 
that argument's lost where people don't really understand the difference between those two, you know, Refugees things and and, and the importance of and the importance of understanding the difference of it. And I just think um yeah, it was baffling with sort of the how how yeah, those coming in was sort of given, I guess, more uh more credence um in the in the political a lot of political campaigns than than Americans. And I I don't know why it's such a a hot button issue to to want to put your country in a in a place of priority. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I agree. It's it's refreshing, uh, I guess, to see somebody with a, a very different background than mine uh, that that shares that that viewpoint for sure. To me, it seems like like common sense. You know, uh, you know that's on the macro level. If you go to the micro scale of Let's say it's it's your house surrounded by a huge homeless population, and they come to your door. Right. And it's like, okay, yeah, I, I helped this first person. I brought them in. I let them sleep on the couch. They shower. I feed them, whatever. Mm. And then now another family shows up. Like at some point, you're like, hey, fuckers, I, I can't take any more of you in. Right. You know, and and, and it's like that. There's where that disconnect I think is is really dangerous in this country. Is that people who are on on face value and in their normal day-to-day lives right now are completely unaffected by whoever the fuck comes in here that doesn't make any bit of difference and and it's easy for them to feel better about themselves by saying yeah no you know come on in we're a nation of immigrants fucking come you know it's like yeah we are but but there's still a process that that makes sense where where you're only taking people that uh you know only so many that you can actually uh, afford to take in and help not to where it becomes a detriment to your own country and also making sure that dangerous people, that bad people, that, uh, you know, completely unskilled people that are only coming here because they, you know, don't like the the shit sandwich that they're in, but it's not, not particularly dangerous. It's just, you know, poverty stricken. Like, you know, again, that's, you guys got to figure that out, you know, but, uh, yeah, you know, at, at any rate, um, the, um, the kind of the, the curiosity I have in, in hearing you talk about that turning point moment for you um, with the gentleman and, and his wife, mm-hmm. you know, being taken and, and not being able to come up with enough money. Is there a, a polar opposite scenario that happened while you were over there? One that, that gave you legitimate hope where you were like, wow, uh, we are making a difference or there, there is something positive coming out that, that was ever kind of a light switch moment for you like that? I think I'm sure there are. Um, I've tend to, the book tends to kind of go into the more difficult ones, but I think um, I think for me, I guess there was a, there was one moment of of getting a sense of hope, and that actually came from an Iraqi soldier. And I remember it was after the Mosul offensive, and sort of sitting there and talking to a bunch of these guys that I kind of knew over the course of several years who were really lazy in the beginning and and again they didn't know what they were fighting for and who they were fighting and were sort of part of the whole pack that ran away in the early Mosul days and abandoned their weapons. And then in reconnecting with them four years later, they gave me hope in the sense that I saw something. I saw I, I saw a desire to fight for Iraq. I saw not only, I mean, having four years of incredible uh, combat experience, but I saw this sort of sense of they understood their country, they understood what they were capable of, and they understood that it was on them to keep it that way. You know, they, they'd had this massive sort of triumph and, and 
they weren't going to sort of put up with any more shit. So I guess it was almost like a, a growing up yeah. that I encountered with, with some of the guys who were probably, when I first met them, probably 19, 20, you know. And so yeah. when I met them again, they're in their mid-20s. And, and yeah, it was like they'd, they'd, they'd grown up and, and become these men who knew what they were fighting for. And to me, I, I thought that was, that was special. Yeah. Did, um, in dealing with young men that way, did you ever find, and I know there's a, a ton yeah. of women reporters, but did you ever find that to be a hurdle uh, or, or cause any issues or, or get into trouble because they didn't respect you or think I'm not going to talk to you? Did you ever come across that? Uh, not really. I mean, generally found, you know, you get a few odds dares. I did have one uh, experience where it was a driver for someone who had broke into my room at one point and tried to grab me and, um, I just, I, punt. I went, for, <laughs> it was that instinct of, you know, when I think somebody told me when I was about 10 years old to go for the nose, kick him in the nuts. Yeah. I actually went for the nose cause he <laughs> was like coming at me and yeah. I just, yeah, I went for the nose and, um, he ran away pretty fast. Um, so that was sort of, you know, a, a physical encounter, but, uh, generally I, yeah, generally people have always been really respectful. You go further South in Iraq, um, I guess below Baghdad and you're looking at the really religious areas in Najif. And so a few of those where you have to be fully covered as a woman. And I think that was really the first time for me that I, I, women are generally treated as kind of a third gender when you're going into these places. So I'm not expected to, to sort of behave like they're women, but I'm not a man. So I'm kind of this arbitrary thing in between where it's actually really great because it gives you access to everybody. With I can low go and, expectations. Yeah, I can yeah. go and sit with the women and get their stories, and then I can go into the uh, to the other room and with the guys. So yeah, so it's it was a great from an access point of view that my male colleagues don't have. But um, yeah, so I I went I, but when I further went further south, and it was during sort of the before the Ashura, which is the big Shia kind of um, event in October that was the first time that I really experienced people who wouldn't look at me and wouldn't shake my hand. I wouldn't even acknowledge me. And that was a kick in the guts. I, I thought that I would be kind of whatever and ready for that. But when I was with him, you know, a male Iraqi friend of mine and everyone shaking his hand and literally would not even look at me. Yeah. It was like you were invisible. And that was, yeah, it was, well, it was sort of a, I reeled for a little bit. <laughs> well, and that's a pretty common experience for females across the board in a lot of yeah. different parts of that region, right? Where yeah. they're, they're basically invisible. You know? Yeah. Um, where do you see the entire region going over the next 20 years? Um, that's a tough one. I, I guess a lot, it depends on Iran is sort of a, a major centerpiece and what uh, policies that we decide to take with that because of its its tentacles and its proxy spread. So, yeah, I think that's going to be a major issue in in that. But I I don't know that we're going to see any grandiose sweeping changes. What would you do to uh, to ensure? I know you talked about one one thing at a time and trying to get elections, yeah. but you know when when push comes to shove and you've got to do something or nothing. Uh, yeah, I think you, you mostly answered it earlier, but I mean, do you think the United States should basically just say, you know what, we're fucking out of here and leave the entire region? Uh, I, I have de I definitely have days like that, but on a more rational day, I will say that I think a really small presence 
and really small presence. Because, and I say that because when the US did completely withdraw from Iraq in 2011, and then ISIS came in several years later, Iraqis, you know, even even the Kurds turned to Iran because that was their neighbor who could get in there immediately and assist them. And the US, obviously, we have to mobilize assets and things take a long time. So it took several weeks before or months even before the US decided to recommit to that. And had there just been a small contingency, again, it's that deterrent factor. I don't want to see Americans fighting and dying. I don't want to see, um, you know, any anyone from the U.S. having to to give up, sacrifice their life for that. But I do think it has, you know, again from a, a psychops perspective, um, a benefit to just yeah. a small footprint. It's like it's like the kids. Uh, your parents are gone, but there's a camera right in the house, right? Right. And then again, you know, and again, it's an issue just, that I've looked into and want to explore is the militia uh, side of it in um, what what private companies you know is that going to could that be a more effective way of handling some of these conflicts in a way that sort of doesn't have the the u.s sort of stamp um government wise but maybe they can you know do more more effectively and quietly and still have that deterrent impact if needed yeah does it have to be does it have to be the U.S. you know active military? Yeah, I think that where it's tricky is take uh, Libya as as yeah. probably a good example yeah. of like, yeah, on paper and in theory it sounds great to just help the rebels overthrow, but it, because it's so corrupt to begin with, it just doesn't pan out that way. I mean, fuck, you can go back to uh, Somalia, Mogadishu, right. you know, in ninety three, and same same thing. That's the whole reason we we were there is because all this help that we're trying to give isn't isn't getting to where it needs to go, you know. And so it, the whole region is tricky, man. There there's not a, a simple solution, uh, but it's it's really uh, both fascinating and and remarkably enjoyable to be able to to ask you these questions and get your perspective because I, I do uh, I know that it's it's really valuable and I, I uh, value it very much. Thank you. Yeah. Would you ever want to go back? Uh, not on purpose. Yeah. No, I mean, um, I, you know, my, my stance on it is, is pretty clear cut that way is that I, I, I think some of life's most complicated problems require some of the simplest solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's kind of one of them is that, um, you know, when, when I look at, you know, the friends that I've lost, the amount of money and resources that we've spent, uh, the headaches and, and, uh, grievances the, and the grieving process that so many families have gone through because, you know, one soldier dying isn't just, you know, uh, doesn't just affect one person I mean, it affects lots of people, you know, and that, and that's not even taking into account the, the tens of thousands of, of people who've been mutilated, uh, you know, lost limbs and yeah. been burnt and, and, you know, TBIs to where they can't live a normal life. And, you know, so, you know, it's, it's kicked our country in the nuts pretty hard for 20 years, you know, and, uh, when I look at what's going on there and what we've given as a business guy, it's impossible for me not to look at it at least somewhat from a cost benefit analysis standpoint so, of saying like, what did we get for what we gave? And we got fucking zero for it, you know? Um, and to me, that's bad business. I don't care if you're fighting a war or running a popsicle stand, you know, those principles are true irrespective of, of what, what situation you find yourself in. And so, uh, I, I hate the fact that, you know, a number of my 
very close friends and some of the best men uh, that I'll ever know are now dead before even at the age that I am now Mm. because of what we're doing and have done and continue to do over there. So that's, that's my take on it. Yeah. And if not now, when? Yeah. Any other questions you have for me? No. No. Uh, I always like getting asked questions because yeah. I'm usually the asshole. It's, it's always what year, did you, what year were you out? Uh, at right, it was right after Obama was elected, November of 08. So, right. So I've now been out about as long as I was in, which is weird. Um, right. You know, but um, so what now for you? Are you ever going to settle down? Uh-huh. I, I want to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I literally <laughs> been on the road for a month. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of a. Um, a nomad right now. I decided to get out of New York City during the pandemic and stop bleeding money. Do you still have a, a place there? No, I got rid of it. Oh, okay. Well, I just didn't renew the lease. So I've been a bit of a gypsy, which has been um, which has been great. I've managed to see, you know, I've been in Alaska and Montana and California and Florida and Virginia and just yeah, Wyoming, every every state you can imagine, obviously Texas now. Um, so it's been really great. And I've got to see so many different people and I really love working remotely. I'm someone who doesn't, you know, can't really stick to a an office environment by any stretch of the imagination. So I, yeah, so I've, I've been running about and then just kind of doing a, a lot of work, I guess, in Mexico. It's been the easiest with the pandemic rather than trying to, to go abroad right now. So I really miss it and I can't wait to get back and just focusing on the writing stuff and, um, yeah, sort of building that. And then I have my next couple of book projects I'm working on, um, sort of wanting to delve more into, I guess, the psychology of, you know, how – I mean, some of the stories you hear of just the most heinous things that people endure. And I just, I'm fascinated by the psychology of what gets people through those um, and how they survive just sort of the, the types of torture or the types of situations I couldn't even begin to imagine. And and these are ordinary people without any training, without any skill, without any um, kind of, yeah, nothing to draw from on that. And so that is something I'm I'm hoping to probe over the next year or two and then um yeah just building it up to, and to me I, I agreed i'm fascinated you see you know it's similar to kind of the stories you see where like a grandma is with her granddaughter and a car runs over and she has the strength to pick it pick up, up you know car. type of thing is yeah. that I, I think you know hum, human beings are hardwired parasympathetically i think to mm-hmm. that you know w- when you're in a situation where they're really it's it's fight or flight and you can't flight like you're you're gonna fight because you're you're instinctually i mean our the the survivability of our species depends on on people doing that you know so i think some of that is is kind of genetically hardwired but it's still fascinating nonetheless yeah do you find yourself uh claiming somewhere as being home in the next few years or uh yes definitely i'm hoping by the summer that i'll have a bit more of an idea uh i guess yeah this with the pandemic it really has forced us all to realize that we don't have to be in these cities anymore and um, care to share where that might be or is it you know i wish i could give you an answer because i actually don't know yet so um yeah i have you know i'm a beach girl again i go back to my my roots and and think well you know i'd love to be in hawaii but is that too far away from from other work or can i you know be there um obviously florida has some amazing beaches as well um and then part of me you know i'm totally okay with sort of more of a country style of things as well but (laughs) Yeah, I just think it's time to kind of go back to some of those roots a little bit and be um, 
Yeah, be away from the city, slightly quiet. As long as I'm relatively close to an airport, that's important. Yeah. And I'd like to go and spend a chunk of time in Australia because it's been a long time since I've been back. And uh, I really yeah, miss my family and yeah. I, I'd love to just be able to kind of go there and just and work from there and just be with them. Yeah. Any bucket list items? Bucket list items. I, I mean, still a lot of countries I need to go to. You know, for me, that's important um is there one thing that stands out as like before i die i have to do this i'd like to be a mom yeah that's what i'd like to do yeah i always think it's interesting when people immediately assume that given the work that i do that it must just be an impossible thing but i can tell you from other women that do my profession almost all of them have kids and i think they manage it well, and I think it's also really important to tell these stories from you know from the woman or from a mother's perspective because you're going to get a very different read of a situation on the ground, um, you know, from someone from that point of view than you probably are from if you're looking at uh, you know one of my say male colleagues who's more focused on the military aspect of things. Yeah. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. And I just think it's important to never lose both those perspectives. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really uh, both admirable and refreshing, I think, and that, uh, you know, there needs to be not just from how you view things, but I think, you know, people with your experiences and, and perspectives that are very well-rounded by comparison to most, I think it's really important to have kids and pass that mm. on to them, you know, because um, without that you have a very – one-dimensional sheltered perspectived mm. society that way but uh where can people find you uh online and and uh and all of that uh so my instagram and my twitter is just my name h-o-l-l-i-e-s-m-c-k-a-y and uh before i let you go here there is one question uh, that i wanted to ask and it, and it pertains to your accent yes and the way that you pronounce, the way that uh, it's even heavier in Australia than it is uh, I, with British If you heard English. my dad talk, then you probably wouldn't understand him. <laughs> it, it, well, so what's funny is like the, the Boston accent, right, is, is like a carryover rendition of the British accent. Uh-huh. You know, and then Australia and New Zealand are kind of somewhere in between, sort of. But uh, I've always been curious about the, the pronunciation of an R at the end of words that end in A, like yeah. Australia or Virginia. Australia 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 so I had to go to these elo- I don't know why my mom made me go to these sort of elocution lessons when I was a kid and it was a I was a nun and she had a very strong sort of British accent and I was never allowed to say like most Australians will say Australia I had to sit there with a tape recorder and go Australia Australia <laughs> Australia Australia so my accent's a little bit warped from all of that I, I i wonder if you maybe don't realize it like i didn't when, even realize so when like you if you listen to the interview zach back it up no um when you said you said virginia 
uh, and Australia, bo- both of them, it, it was like Virginia. It was like Virginia. it ends in an R. Virginia. Yeah. I didn't even notice it yeah. in Alaska and Montana and California and Florida and Virginia and just yeah, Wyoming, every every state you can imagine. I've always now uh, I'll notice it yeah, when I've I speak. Always, I've always wondered about that. A lot of words that end in A are pronounced like they end in an AR. It's really right. Strange to me, but I was just curious if it sounds like it's subconscious. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Rock and roll. Uh, Miss McKay, I can't thank you enough for for coming on. Uh, you've lived a, an extraordinary life uh, already. And the, the stories in the book are, are gut-wrenching, but at the same time, really, really important for especially people in Western civilized, if you want to call them that, societies to, to gain that knowledge and understanding of, of just how lucky we are to live in, in a place where a lot of us, myself included, bitch regularly about things that we really have no business bitching about. And I think your book uh, does a fantastic job at promoting a a well-rounded healthy perspective that that will lead to appreciation for what we have as opposed to the disdain that a lot of people show for it nowadays so uh, i also think it's really awesome that your forward is by jocko and it's published under uh, his his new publishing company yeah. newer publishing company so that's pretty cool yeah jocko uh, with uh, d'angelo publications yeah. together yeah um but uh, again i i really appreciate you carving out the time and uh, staying a couple extra days to accommodate the schedule and uh, and sharing your story with us it's been uh, it's been fascinating thanks for having me it's been it's been an honor oh absolutely i'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast origin labs and jocko fuel jocko fuel is a great product uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the jocko fuel line uh, the guests and i enjoy them on the show and outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just all around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house, and they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now, and I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd like to take a second to uh, shout out our newest sponsor, which is Project Warpath. This is a Navy SEAL-owned company uh, that provides apparel with a pretty edgy uh, feel. And uh, it's a good friend of mine that, uh, that runs it out of California. Uh, and just a, overall a great outfit. Um, they've got a, a whole line of different shirts uh, one of which uh, is, is arguably arguably my favorite, which is Epstein didn't kill himself. Wonder where that one came from. And uh, but yeah, there's Hillary Clinton killed my friends. Uh, there's a bunch of uh, pretty edgy and cool patriotic sayings on T-shirts with uh, with good design, good high quality, uh, and it's one that uh, that I'm actually wearing right now. So uh, I appreciate uh, them sponsoring the show again. That's Project Warpath. Uh, you can get all their stuff online and, uh, and you know, the shipping and customer service is top notch quality product and uh, you're supporting a veteran owned business. So shout out to Project Warpath. Go check their uh, stuff out. I'd also like to say thank you to our other sponsor, Resilience Premium CBD. Resilience is excited to offer all mic drop listeners a 20% off discount on all products for two weeks from when this podcast is live using the discount code mic drop at checkout. That's two words, Mike drop at checkout. I'd also like to say that Resilience is a great company uh, that works in conjunction with Trico CBD. 
and all military veterans and first responders receive 35% off. Yes, that's 35% off for all military veterans and first responders, and that's uh, through the Military and First Responders Program. You just have to sign up at resilientcbd.com slash military first responders discount. In terms of about resilience, generally speaking, it's a premium CBD that I use. Again, it works in conjunction with the Tricos brand for the everyday athlete. Uh, That's www.resiliencecbd.com. And Resilience was uh, really born with the founders who uh, are military veterans as well. Personally experienced the effects uh, and impact that CBD had on their own mental and physical obstacles. Their focus was sharper, mental stress was calmed, fitness stamina increased, and their bodies felt less pain, inflammation after super intense workouts. Uh, a lot of times, most people and, and people are able to either wean and off entirely or significantly reduce pain management, ther- uh, pain management therapy. This is a shared vision among the founders that this uh, incredible supplement had not only changed their lives, but had the power to provide unbelievable benefits to family, friends, athletes, fellow veterans, and ultimately the entire fitness community. So big shout out to Resilience for their product as well as the Trico stuff. Uh, we sure appreciate their support. To you, the listener, uh, because I haven't said it yet uh, so far, two things. One, choke yourself. Two is that if you'll notice behind Miss McKay, there is our, our new um, addition to the to the studio, which is made by Veteran Wood Company, for those of you that, that are going to ask where it came from. Uh, he made this for me after seeing my abysmal uh, coin display racks that I had when I did a tour of the studio a few months ago. And so he, ma- he made that. Uh, and presented it to me um, just just a little bit ago, and, and we got all the coins put on there and hung up. And I uh, could not be more thankful for him him doing that again. That's Veteran Woodco on uh, on Instagram, but uh, that's from him. Really, really neat way to display all all the different guests and people that I've worked with and their coins. So uh, shout out to him and and the big announcement of of him doing that for you, the listener. I sure appreciate you guys tuning in show after show and making this uh, what it is. Um, can't thank you enough. It wouldn't wouldn't be a show without you. Again, thank you to, to Holly for coming on, and uh, and we sure appreciate uh, both of you guys. So, uh, without further ado, until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. 
The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 